Okay, Jonathan, we are now recording. Okay. Thank you so much for coming to my home. <laughs> Thank you for the smoothie. You're very that was welcome. good. Thank you. <laughs> How does it make you feel? Uh, it's good. Good to get some greens in the system. I put LSD in it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not hallucinating yet, so it'd be pretty crap LSD <laughs> if, if you put some of that in. This is so cool and weird, isn't it? Because we were just talking for the past half hour. And now that we hit the record button, it feels different, doesn't it? Uh, not that different. That's good. That's good. For me, for me, it feels like a different psychological state, but in a good way. I like, I really like, um, I think I really like the idea of just having long focused hangouts with people I like and I find interesting. Yeah. Especially on Saturday mornings. Like I like the idea of giving the best part of my day, my, my, my strongest sort of on point part of the day when I'm well rested and, um, you know, my, my brain is functioning at highest powers. Uh-huh. I like giving that to a social hangout. It's good. Um, yeah. I don't really, I, I mean, I very rarely do that. I don't know about you, but most social things are like at night when you're like tired and, uh, my, my brain just doesn't fire nearly as well. Uh, so I feel like most social hangouts are kind of like, it's like this thing we do with, uh, kind of like the shit ends of our days and our like free time in between the things that we give our best brain to. Um, so the idea of carving out on a Saturday morning time to just think and hang out and talk with a friend, uh, that is so attractive to me. That's good. What do you think? So. The inter- I don't think about it. Yeah, I just don't think about it that way. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yes. It <laughs> seems like way too much thought for me to put into, like, socializing. I'll just do whenever. I mean... Uh, I, I mean, to be honest, our jobs are pretty flexible. There's nothing saying you couldn't socialize at 10 in the morning. It's just that mm. it's hard to find people who don't have jobs <laughs> who are available to just hang out at 10 a.m., right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but I, I'm fine socializing on Friday night. I think, you know, last night I was ready to go, but couldn't find anyone. So that's how it goes sometimes, you know, so... Yeah, but I'm happy to chat now. I'm pretty happy to chat, like not all the time. I'm an introvert naturally, but you know, if something's going on, I think I'll I'll get into it. You don't find that at different times of the day and different, uh, t- yeah, different types of situations where you hang out socially. That sometimes you feel like way more on and kind of present and yeah, kind of excited and able to uh, contribute a lot of energy. And sometimes you just like can't do that. Uh, not really. I think, like, for me, I think it's just, like, well, it's two things, right? Is the the social activity something that's interesting to me, or and or are the people interesting, right? If it's boring people and a boring activity, my energy gets a bit low. And then, like, I also need just time alone to recharge. So, if it's kind of like I've done a lot of social activity, then I definitely just like spend a day or two at home just doing nothing or just, you know, putzing around playing video games, maybe reading a novel, but like not doing anything, uh, stressful or whatever interactive even. But yeah, not the time of the day doesn't really seem to have any effect on me. Hmm. Damn. You're lucky. I feel like, I guess that, yeah, you're right that it definitely matters who you're hanging out with. Um, but I feel so much more sort of, uh, just alive and able to think and talk right now than I do most days after five o'clock. 
Okay. I wonder what that says. I wonder what that says about me. I don't know. I don't think it's worth worrying about too much. <laughs> you know, maybe some people don't like. Like some people, like I'm very much a morning person. My wife's not. Like I, I wake up. Like today was like as late as I sleep in because I was kind of burned out from the week. So I slept in until eight, and that was like me. I first woke up at six and kind of started to not eat a bit more sleep and slept till eight. That's as late as I'll ever sleep. My wife on the weekends is like. She'll sleep till 10 a.m., no problem, right? And normally I'm up at 6. Sometimes, right, this time of year, I'm up even earlier because it's sunny out, like sometimes 5.30 or 5, the birds are chirping loud and, you know. But then I also tend to go to bed pretty early too. So I think it kind of just depends on what your sleep cycle is, all that other stuff. Yeah. yeah 5 o'clock for me is not a problem, you know. Mm. 5 o'clock at night. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I mean, when I was younger, I definitely would like, go, like, really late, you know, like, 3, 4 in the morning, no problem. I guess I could still now. I just, like, just no one, no one I socialize with in my age group <laughs> lasts that long anymore. Yeah. So, you know, and I probably couldn't do it, like, when I was, you know, in my 20s. Well, I was, like, when I was a grad student, I was a bit crazy, right? Like, uh we had like uh, access to our building 24 seven basically. And there was a 20, not quite a 24 hour coffee shop, uh, restaurant it's called the hard times cafe it's still there in Minneapolis, but it, it would stay open until I think it was actually open all the time, but they served until 4am and started serving breakfast at 6am. So it was basically 22 hours. And so there, there are many times in grad school where I'd stay in the computer science lab till two, three in the morning and go over and drink coffee there and kind of come back and write some more and, or then, so go hang out with someone after really late. So that was kind of just par for the course, but yeah, I did the, I did, I did that kind of stuff a fair amount too. It seems like at the, at our university, students don't do that. Uh, well, I think, well, A, there's very little 24 hour stuff here, right? Like. What what do you do in Southampton after eleven o'clock? Most of the pubs close, so unless you're going clubbing. Like there's nothing else to do, right? The U.S. Mm. You know, you can go to freaking Walmart, right? Right. Twenty four hours and go. I know people who do that. They'll go like three in the four in the morning and they'll just be like, "Oh, Walmart." You know, I'll go look and, and buy some crap, right? Right. But, right, right, right. You know, different. I think this like Southampton's dead after eleven, pretty much, apart from a few. Nightclubs mm. on London Road. Okay, that's one possibility. But another possibility is that U.S. the, the campuses in the U.S. are fucking crazy and totally different, right? I mean, the, the U.S. Camp, college campus is this is kind of like a like a long term kind of tourist uh, resort, yeah. And, it, and it's constructed to be that, and and it's very much sort of marketed as that. Um, so I think that I think there's sort of a, a cultural reason for it that just that on American campuses there there are more places to go and to be yeah. on campus in. It, Late at night, even if, because I think our library here is open uh, 24 hours sometimes, I think. Um, yeah. But even when it is, there's nowhere else to really go or to be or to hang out. Um, whereas, mm. I mean, I remember Temple University was, it was, the entire place was totally lit up all night. Yeah. I mean, high powered lights everywhere. Yeah. And there were multiple stores and multiple uh, places right there and, and immediately around the campus where you could go and you could be at any time at night, um, like 7-Eleven and stuff like that. And yeah. I think that led to a, a much sort of stronger culture of people just being up and around uh, at all different times. In fact, that was one of the best things that I remember about it. I like that shit. 
Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah, no, like, like Southampton, well, I think all British universities are kind of, don't have that. That's kind of good. Like, Oklahoma was kind, of, was kind of like the masters of that, right? Like, they had just any kind of food, brand food chain that you wanted, like Cinnabon or... What do they have? That's Sparrow. <laughs> yeah. They probably the only Sparrow I've ever seen outside of like New York City, like on the university campus and stuff, right? So uh, they had this like all these different chains. Basically, any fast food you wanted, you could eat on campus. Yeah, there was a couple places that were open late. And there was this like little village area, or is this little village area called Campus Corner? It's kind of similar thing, right? And a couple of places are open till four in the morning and stuff. Do you remember when you were an undergrad very well? No, it's so long ago. I really? Can't. It's in the, of course I can. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, do you have vivid kind of like memories of the emotional experiences and stuff? The emotional experiences? Yeah, yeah. Just, like how just how it felt. Oh, no, yeah. I, like, I remember my first year just being so... I basically was in like, an anxiety attack, like permanent state of anxiety my first year. Uh, well, it's a bit different, right? So like Canadian, or where I was, Quebec, um, the schooling system is different than both the American... And the, it's a bit like the British college system, but it's a bit different too. So we go to high school till grade 11 in Quebec. Then you, you take provincial exams. And then there's this intermediate two-year college thing, similar to the A-levels, but not quite as intense, mm. uh, called CEGEP. And that's kind of the filtering mechanism in Quebec. So you do different degree programs. And there were like three-year vocational degrees. And then there were two-year pre-university degrees. And so... You could, it was, that was kind of a cool experience. That to me was the biggest shock. So at seventeen, I went. I went to like a private school with like you know uniforms and all that stupid Harry Potter crap. And uh, then I went to Dawson College, which was for English speaking Montreal, probably the largest of these sageups, and was kind of very multicultural, very mixed background. Um, there was kind of one that most private school kids were encouraged to go to called Marianopolis, which is, it was private and small and still sheltered. And I think at 17, I was just like fed up with the kinds we went to school with. So I just kind of like wanted to go somewhere different and went to Dawson. And, uh, that was kind of good in the sense that I just met people from different backgrounds, different it was kind of large. It was like 7,000 students going from my graduating class at LCC, my lower Canada college, probably had like 70, right? So a school of maybe a couple hundred to a school of 7,000, right? Like a scale of 10. And just that induced max panic attack in me. And then... Yeah, for the first first year there, I was just was like, what's going on? I also was like an all-boys school, and so I hadn't really been oh, socialized wow. to be around girls. There's all these girls, you know, it's like you're <laughs> 17, and it's just like a lot of weird, a lot of weird stuff then. And then, I think like, Concordia wasn't as rough a shift. I think the bigger problem there was that a group of my friends had gone from LCC, and we kind of made new friends, and then it was going to Concordia. Very few friends went to Concordia, most went to McGill, and, uh, you know, you don't really realize at the time, but the major you pick really matters, and so I did this very kind of arts, philosophy, political science kind of thing, and a few of my other friends who went there did, like, pretty hardcore science stuff, and at that point, just never even socialized with them anymore, so it was kind of forming a new friendship network, and that was kind of the biggest 
social shift at that age, right? Mm. So, so you felt good about that. Uh, I mean, it was kind of weird. Like I basically, like there's friends who I was really close with growing up in high school and really that juncture is where we kind of drifted away. And even though McGill and Concordia are like four blocks apart, it's like just stop socializing with each other and just Mm. kind of, you know, so so that's kind of, you know, just having to form a new social network, which is kind of just natural anytime you, you move, but, um, yo, I fucking, uh, loved university. Did you? From the fucking, from day one. Yeah. I fucking loved it. Yeah. As soon as I got there, I was like, final fucking lane, my life has begun. It was mostly because, I mean, I, 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 I grew up with, you know, I had a good family that loved me and, and, and treated me well. So I have nothing to complain on the family front, but I just was very unhappy as a child and very unhappy with, yeah, just kind of like the, the situation that I, I was in just as a, as a kid, just generally without even going into to it too much. I was really unhappy as a child. Uh, growing up in my family's house and I just could not fucking wait to get out and then once I did uh, I mean I remember the university experience I mean the university the American university is this crazy kind of pampering uh, in some sense I mean it is it's a completely unrealistic um, uh, but but incredibly delightful kind of uh pampering at least for, for a kid like me coming up as I was. Yeah. Uh, so I had mixed emotions about it because I remember it as some of the most sincerely kind of like liberating times in my kind of like mental, my personal kind of uh, interior life, mm-hmm. um, which are some of the most beautiful kind of memories I, I have actually, um, kind of like becoming want, wanting to really get into a, a serious kind of intellectual life. Um, but looking back on it with what I know now and the way I've kind of come to understand the world better a little bit since then uh it was it's sort of embarrassing almost mm-hmm. um because i was so sort of naive and, and unaware of uh the absurd kind of just the, the economic and the political um uh sort of realities that made such a place possible uh, and allowed me to have that kind of in- incredibly transformative uh but also extremely artificial uh, and kind of politically produced existence mm-hmm. um so it, it tears it tears at me because yeah I associate it with some of the best times, and it's also kind of uh, the, the U.S. university experience. I think is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, no, yeah, Canada's a bit. Canada's always like the middle ground between Britain and the U.S. <laughs> like on basically almost everything. Right. But um, yeah, no, Canadian universities are definitely a lot less pampered than American universities. I think British universities they're like completely on their own. In a lot of ways, I find it pretty, pretty good. Uh, I find that the students here are a lot less, a lot less like demanding than America. Like American students have like a lot of expectations. I think here their students are like largely self-reliant, and sometimes it's a weird emotional labor. I found at U.S. schools where like students almost want you to become their friend or. Uh, I don't know what, mm. what they, what they quite, quite wanted, like they wanted more than this. And whereas here I find the students just are transactional interaction. In some ways it's almost quite distant, but it's fine. You know, I find it very distant. Yeah. Do you like that? Well, no, I think I'm learning that that's probably, well, again, I have mixed emotions about it on some, on some level. I do kind of as an intellectual and as an educator, I mean, I, I, I desire, you know, intense kind of, uh, connection, you know, mm-hmm. and, and communion in some sense with, uh, the people around me that I think with, whether it be, 
uh, people smarter than me or people who I'm supposed to be uh, educating, you do desire that kind of intense connection that would spill over into some kind of like what's what, what it, you know what is basically friendship um, in in the classical sense. Uh, but given sort of the demands of of uh, the job and the kind of like the labor reality of it, the truth is I don't have the I wouldn't have the emotional I wouldn't have the the emotional or just sort of neural resources to actually uh, give that uh, mm-hmm. to anyone, to students, if they, if they were excited enough and, and interested in enough to even want it. I feel like I wouldn't be able to do it um, just because of the demands elsewhere in life. And that's, I think that's really sad. Um, and that's something that kind of upsets me because I wish I could, I kind of do wish I had that. But on the other hand, if, if they were to try to do that with me, I kind of wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, I think. Well, okay, so there's places where you can do that, right? And they're like the, they're the U.S. four-year liberal arts college, and then you can't do research. Yeah. Well, I don't. I mean, I I wouldn't say you can't do research. I, I think I've got some friends at those places who do. You know, they research well. They'll publish books. Oh yeah, that. I didn't mean any disrespect, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think you can't do research. I think, like, to me, uh, to me, actually, I think when I talk to some of them, they'll. They'll kind of say that while it can be very rewarding, the positive side, there's also a pretty serious emotional labor, like on the flip side, right? Like you really are expected at schools like that to, to you know, it's, it's expectation you invite the kids back to your house for, you know, some kind of end oh. of semester party. Oh, and, really? Wow. Yeah, you know, like not, not like requirement for the job, but, you know, friends who've gone through the tenure process there kind of told me stories about like, like very... Criteria that strikes me as kind of loose and arbitrary and potentially could be abused is basically like how much the students like you becomes a, a mm. basis for whether or not you keep your job, right? That's a bit, like to me, it's not attractive. Some people really like that though, right? Like some wow. people really enjoy that kind of close, intense mentorship experience. Um, I feel like that's, that's pedagogically really perverse, right? Because it puts the students sort of... Uh, uh, kind of unchecked judgments, kind of emotional uh, responses and judgments to things yeah. that they're bringing into university it sort of puts them first as the criterion uh, for how one should kind of think and speak to them and behave towards them. Yeah. Uh, and isn't if the whole point of education is transformation, then in some sense it, it kind of prohibits uh, the possibility that what those judgments and emotional responses to the lectures that they're bringing into the university is precisely what would have to be uh, transformed. Yeah. Uh, you kind of can't do that if that becomes the thing that you're trying to meet, uh, you know, as a, as a teacher or as a presence on campus. So that sounds really tough to have to be that. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult from a labor perspective. I, a part of me is also just, I, I find it really inegalitarian, like in terms of how the education, should, like it's based basically those schools also then end up, uh, kind of just really kind of reproducing that interesting kind of class privilege. And, you know, obviously I could hear like friends screaming and yelling about like need blind admission. I mean, there's a lot of, these schools aren't naive to that. And they think a lot about need blind admissions and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, um, there's almost a way, a, first of all, you have to come from a certain kind of class background to be made aware of mm-hmm. going to those kinds of schools as a possibility. Totally. Right. And then, um, 
just yeah. the way they're set up kind of it's the whole thing kind of is a bit weird to me also yeah you know? I, I kind of like I mean part of it's because Quebec sort of at least aspires to be a European welfare state or did perhaps not so much anymore but you know when I I kind of like the large public university uh, it's not I mean yeah obviously if you want like the best education for individuals probably a four-year liberal arts college is the way to go but if you're talking about like the function of a university, in a society, in terms of mass post-secondary education, and that, that's right. really, to me, an institution worth fighting for and keeping. And there's trade-offs, right? I mean, we teach 70, 80, next year, 150 student <laughs> lecture halls, right? Or three, or some one of our modules has 300 students, right? So it's like these very large modules. It's not very personal. A lot of the teaching assessments you can do are not the best. You just got to kind of trust the fact that lectures with some kind of seminar component and essays get students somewhere. Mm. Um, but at least you're getting some kind of mass access. Whereas, yeah. you know, I don't think I'll, I don't think a liberal arts college models sustainable for a well, if you want like equal access and based anything on other than, other than merit on like academic performance kind of thing. Right. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel that something going back to something you were saying before I wanted to, uh, say on the point of the, these sort of four-year liberal arts colleges that are, you know, they're often located in really kind of beautiful uh, surroundings. Yeah. It's very, you know, non-urban typically. Yeah. Um, although sometimes they, they are, I guess. Um, and, yeah, this sort of uh, campus culture of kind of intense kind of emotional and intellectual uh, attention from, from your teachers. On the one hand, I think that's really beautiful, and I think that that's probably exactly how education should be in some sense. Uh, and so on, on one hand, I think that's a, that sounds like a great kind of, uh, yeah, college experience. But on the other hand, that also is a pretty extreme kind of uh, pampering Yeah. also in a way that, uh, and I'm not even judging it or being critical of it, but in a way that it, it, it kind of sometimes worries me how, um, how in some way that might be really poorly preparing uh, students for like what uh, is to come in life and society. I feel like the real challenge, like the, all the all the really challenging stuff that makes life in our society really hard and daunting and confusing, um, and so hard to figure out as you get older. Um, I feel I feel like that kind of uh, liberal arts college culture is you almost couldn't design a culture that less prepares people for uh, kind of the the, rea the the grueling realities of, of capitalism and. Yeah, so I feel very conflicted about it. Like it's, I think it's really humane and it's beautiful, a beautiful way of uh, sort of conducting a, an intellectual and collective culture. Mm. But on the other hand, it's so kind of un, it's so antithetical to what yeah everyday life has become that I like. I don't know if I would want if I ever had a child. I don't know if I would want a child to um, for that to be their kind of induction into post high school life. Uh, I mean, I, I guess maybe I, I suspect, I mean, I don't have the data. Right. So, uh, it's, uh, I mean, part of me is like, I, I, part of me suspects that people, I mean, obviously there's a reason people want to go to liberal arts college school schools. Right. And I suspect that they, you know, most students end up doing all right because of it. I don't, but I don't know if the, the value added is actually in the degree itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, is it the effect that, People from overwhelmingly kind of middle class, upper middle class, upper class backgrounds go to these schools, and so they're already kind of fast tracked into professional class or up, 
kind of careers. And so, you know, mm. is, or is it the case that the schools actually prepare them well, right? Because I, I suspect that if they weren't good at doing that, they'd collapse pretty quickly, right? Mm, that's a good point. That's kind of that's kind of my thought. I mean, I, I kind of I understand the kind of school of hard knocks <laughs> mentality. There's there's times where I definitely feel it, right? Like I definitely like definitely like thinking back when I went to my PhD at University of Minnesota. I think the students who went to large state schools tended to handle graduate school better. Uh, and, and my observation was that those students didn't expect as much from their advisors as the ones who went to liberal arts college schools, right? I, that's it. That's kind of just completely subjective observation, but mm. I think pretty, you know, like I, I can think, I can point to people in my cohort and the years around me, and the ones who tended to just kind of knuckle down and kind of do the work. Uh, tend to be from a public kind of public school background, whereas the ones who may get kind of really caught in some weird trap with their advisor seem to be mm. um, kind of expecting something that I think perhaps a liberal arts college would be primed you for. But mm. I'm sort of I'm sort of partial to the theory that or the, sort of the perspective on education in our society that for the most part it kind of just uh, rubber stamps the the yeah. privilege that the privilege that you come into it with. And so yeah. I think it does look like, uh, you know, people go on to have successful lives, uh, after sort of university experience. Mm -hmm. But I feel like for the most part, they just go right back to where they, uh, would have been kind of by the, by their kind of inherited capitals effects yeah. on, on, on their situation. Right. Yeah. I suspect, I mean, the little bit I've read on that, like in the academic literature, I think kind of I think confirms that, right? I do think so. So yeah. you know, then that kind of raises the question: What are we trying to do? <laughs> the degree. I mean, the one thing. The one thing I'll add, which I've kind of noticed, is kind of odd feature of public university, is that. So like, like, like I'll teach a module. So I'm teaching these modules, second year modules, seventy five to one hundred students each semester. Uh, anonymous marking, which means that, which has, which I think is good. Unlike the American system, like I think that's it's completely fair. Anonymous marking, but one of the weird effects of that is that I then basically don't know who's done good work, right? So like the names don't register, and then it's just this large anonymous lecture hall set up, and uh, I don't really get to know the students all that well. But what I've noticed is that the two or three students in any module who seek me out and start kind of asking like serious questions, not just like what I have to do to do better in the assignment, but actually are interested, they end up getting a pretty kind of uh, bespoke <laughs> to borrow a British term kind of education, whereas the, you know, the most of the other ones just kind of grab through. So it's one of the weird effects is there's a, I can think of a couple of students who kind of just maybe that's onto me or also kind of notice other ones who've latched on to other lecturers in the department, right? They actually get a lot out of it. Whereas the kind of the, the 95%, 97% just kind of drift through and do what they're doing. But you know, three, four, 5% actually end up in some ways getting a, a kind of perhaps even more uh, intense one-on-one -on -one relationship with lecturers than you would even get at a liberal arts college. It's kind of just one of those weird, weird features, right? Large mm -hmm. classroom means that if you actually go and make that effort as a student to seek lecturers out, you might get far more attention. Yeah. Right? Well, I, oh, well, that's definitely true. Yeah. 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 Um, cool. So what else? What else on your mind? 
I don't know. You have a you and the interviewer. What's your next discussion topic? Oh well, we can talk about whatever. <laughs> we can talk about whatever. No, that I'm. I don't have any plans or uh, agendas for you. Yeah. Um, What's your ambition for the podcast? Oh shit! Uh, I think I can honestly say, literally, I have no ambitions with it. It, it is almost purely for the fun of the idea. Like the yeah. actual, the actual fun that this is uh, giving me right now is probably the only thing I could ever hope or expect from this podcast. That's good. Um, yeah, I'm mostly interested in yeah how I think it can kind of add to my to my own life. I mean, that sounds pretty selfish, but I don't have many times a, a week or many times a month where I just sit down at length with someone I like and I'm interested in mm-hmm. and just talk uh, in a really focused way. Of course, I have I had I do social things. I hang out yeah. with people. I go to parties occasionally. Um, I'll do different kinds of things with people for sure. But it's always so distracted, you know, mm-hmm. and it's so, and it's like I was saying before, I'm often tired, I'm often sort of half present, um, and that can be nice. There's nothing against that. Um, not, I'm nothing. I'm not sort of criticizing, you know, the culture of, of small talk or chit chat or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. That stuff can be nice, um, but there are very few sort of times a, a month that I really truly have just a deep conversation with someone I know and like, or or someone I don't necessarily know but I'm interested in. So the very simple fact that I'm uh, sort of using this to put that in my life in, in a regular way. Mm-hmm. Seems worth it. Yeah. And I'm going to try to do it every weekend. That's a good plan. That's a good goal. Um, yeah. I guess in, I guess I, my real ambition for this podcast is disalienation. Like, complete disalienation. I think I believe in the possibility of so sort of understanding how my mind and body works mm-hmm. that I can actually just... Uh, step by step, change everything around me as much as possible in the direction of sort of increasing the probability of uh, liberating uh, ways of feeling and and being. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that might actually be uh, what I'm trying to do. And this is just one of many things I'm trying to do that with. So I I guess the ambition would be that through having these conversations with people, I would seek, I I would actually arrive at my true self uh, in a completely disalienated state. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> ambition. <laughs> do, you think, do you think I can do that? Uh, do I think you can do I don't even know if, like, that... I think I'm too much of a Foucauldian to think the idea of, like, complete <laughs> liberation is even possible. Mm-hmm. Right? It kind of strikes me as very... I don't know what, pre-the-post-structuralist turn. Right, I mean, I don't think that ambitions. it's possible. I don't think that yeah. it's possible, but I do think that it's worth making as one's goal. I think that one can have, as, I think one can ser- sincerely have a goal mm-hmm. that one just as sincerely does not believe they could ever have. But you could, uh, uh, you know, to complete, I mean. Um, and I don't think that that's a contradiction. But I think most people will refuse to have a goal if they think that it's impossible because that's seen as sort of illogical or unreasonable or childish or whatever. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's exactly how I want to live. I want to have goals that are my goals because I believe they are the only uh, good or true way for a person to be, or mm. for at least for me to be. Yeah. Um, I want to have that goal, whether or not it's possible or not. Yeah. And then the living would become a process of figuring out what makes that true and good goal impossible mm-hmm. and then living so as to destroy those things, which make it impossible. Yeah. Um, it's good. Yeah. But I think that's like a very, uh, I think that's seen as a weird way of, of living. 
What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, who cares if people think it's cool or not or weird, right? Just do it. I think it can lead to feeling really uh, depressed and overwhelmed and uh, sometimes. By worrying about what other people think? No. Or... No, by... by I mean, it, it's because it's you're basically choosing to live a life of extreme cognitive dissonance when you think this way. Yeah. Like, when you have goals that you sincerely, deeply are trying to achieve, mm-hmm. um, which you also know are almost certainly impossible for you to achieve. Yeah. It, I mean, that is, that is a, an extraordinary amount of stress, sort yeah. of cognitive and emotional. Um, and that might sound kind of corny or something, but I think that's, I think that's actually true. And so I think that's sometimes why you see, especially in sort of radical circles, it's sometimes people who are sort of most passionate about what's wrong with the world and, 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 and so sort of committed to, to changing it and trying to fix things. Uh, there, there is, I think, a high incidence of, of, of different kinds of depression and anxiety that, that go along with that way of seeing mm. the world. Um, yeah, because I think it's basically extreme cognitive dissonance, and that shit wears on your mind and body really badly. I think in a way, in a way, we don't take seriously enough. Yeah, yeah, that's no, fair. I mean, it's like the internet, right? I mean, as we've become so sort of hyper aware of uh, mm. everything going on around the, you know, around the world. Yeah. I mean, again, this sounds like a kind of almost a cliche about internet culture, but I do think it's actually really true and, and radically important in, in a certain way that it may, I think it may, I think it's making us fucking crazy to be so sort of aware of the horrors of the world. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's fucking us up. And I don't think, I think, I think culture can change so rapidly in ways that fuck us up so rapidly yeah. that it's completely out of our sort of, uh, natural human time scale to be able to even realize it's going on and to sort of respond adequately to it. I think people, I think cultures can be kind of swept away by radical changes that they're not really able to do anything about because they're so swept away by it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know what the. I mean, I mean, to me, I think like that was probably more the case with the rise of uh, like TV culture. Whereas now I think internet culture, I just, my, my feelings that like it's so fragmented and fractured and everyone's just in their own weird bubbles. It's like, uh, you know, I, I actually think that people are just kind of become more and more oblivious to things outside their circles. Right. So like probably like for me, my primary social media outlets, Facebook, I'm also on Twitter, but don't tweet much, but I'm really aware that my social media feed is probably 80-90% academics like me, people posting, you know, whatever, articles from like Salon or Vox or whatever the liberal, whatever online outlets are, like the same kind of silly debates, like right now it's all Bernie versus Hillary, right, you know. And then obviously with Facebook you'll kind of have friends or contacts on the periphery who aren't from that world and occasionally something will pop up from them and you just see what a different world they live in. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, mm-hmm. Or occasionally the, 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 the more interesting moments are when there's some kind of really uh, intense academic argument going on with a bunch of people with PhDs and someone from a completely different background <laughs> just kind of interject in a way and then it kind of, you can end up having like really weird um, arguments. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, you know, yeah. And just generally kind of, uh, dissatisfying and confusing yeah. kind of like social, uh, 
uh, complexes, right? Sort of social interactions that yeah. just don't feel good or, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of defeats, it's sort of the opposite of what you want out of, uh, you know, congenial edifying kind of communication with people, you know, uh, when these sort of completely, uh, unexpected, unpredictable, uh, interactions occur. Yeah. Uh, it's just like extreme, it's like extreme doses of friction, uh, that actually make it way more stressful than anything else to me anyway. Yeah. And then like also the significance of stuff, right? Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of weird you know, like what, like I'm trying to think of a big event that's well, like, so like for me, I think for, I assume for you, like the fire in Fort McMurray in Alberta, you probably haven't even heard of it. I don't read the news. Okay. So I don't think it even makes any news over here. Maybe actually I saw the BBC news this morning, right? It's like, this is a town of like a hundred thousand people had to be completely evacuated because of forest fires. Right. So it's like a huge story in Canada. Um, you know, but it's like, obviously it's not a thing here. Mm. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, so it's just like people here, the, the, it's like a, it's a disaster, like a disaster happening anywhere else in the world. It kind right. of, like, a, like an earthquake in Chile or a typhoon in the Philippines. And, right. And, uh, you know, the sufferings, the blip, it's just like they're suffering over there kind of at the periphery of our cognitive web. Right. Whereas, I don't know, what would be, like, the, the latest... Britons don't seem to suffer much. <laughs> I just find, like, there's not, like... Like, I find here, like, I don't know, like, what's the... Mm. Like, what's, like, the most recent... I guess the flooding. Here, right, that's what right? I was going to say. Yeah, maybe some of the flooding. Um, uh, yeah. But, know. you know, but and that, that would register nothing in Canada, right? So it's kind of like... To me, it feels like there's a weird way in which... There's like a closing down of significance or I'm trying, to think, like, trying to think of like an issue that's like serious for conservative friends and not an outrage, like the duck dynasty thing from two years ago. Right. Like, do you remember that? No. Like, you know, duck dynasty. No. You know, like, it's like one of like the top cable shows in the U S and it's like the next <laughs> duck hunters reality show. Right. Wow. And cool. one of the guys started ranting about homosexuals and black killing black people. I just like, it was like horrible stuff. And so they basically, there's an internet campaign to demand that the show be canceled, and then a whole bunch of people started fighting the boycott of advertisers, but, like, most of my conservative friends from Oklahoma were 100%, this is free speech, look at the liberals again telling us what mm. to say, it's political correct culture, right? And mm. so, it's like, that, that's a good example of an event that gets taken completely oppositely by two different camps. Mm. or I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think more recently, Caitlyn Jenner is kind of interesting. Actually, in some ways, I'm kind of struck by how the transphobia actually cuts in a weird way that you wouldn't think necessarily. Like, people are kind of normally pretty liberal. Like, not, like, mm. radical friends. People are kind of traditional liberals, you know, will definitely be voting for Hillary. Like, that kind of crowd. Like, a lot of them are, like, ooh, very transphobic, uncomfortable. You know, and, like, mm. and, like, and weird. And, like, weird things also, like, uh, like a common comment I see is, like, um, like, how is Caitlyn Jenner an athlete? And I'm like, uh, it's Bruce Jenner <laughs> to Catalan in the 1970s, right? It's an Olympic. There's no, like, there's no doubt that, you know, like, there's, you know, any other athlete from the 1970s, you wouldn't think of their, like, their, their shit to any kind of identity status that right. strips them of this medal. But they're like, well, since Caitlyn Jenner's now a woman, anything that happened pre-gender transitions, they're oh, legitimate, wow. right? And it, it's a very weird... Um, kind of transphobia that kind of pops up but I think that like anyone like any of my left wing academic friends wouldn't even be able to 
to engage with that, right? That's interesting. So, That's interesting, and I think that I think there's a non-trivial contingent of the sort of more libertarian conservatives that are kind of like, okay, that's fine, that's cool, whatever. Yeah, actually, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Trump definitely was kind of, like, indifferent to that, right? <laughs> like, oh, he's did like, he not really come down on it? Uh, I don't know what I said about Caitlyn Jenner, I think, but no, but Caitlyn Jenner's, like, offered to, like, support, like, Caitlyn Jenner's endorsed Trump, right? <laughs> right, right? That, that is fucking interesting. Not really, I mean, that's totally unsurprising, right? Because the Jenner's and the Kardashians are, like, Orange County Republicans, right? It's like, they're from, like, that tribe. It's, to me, it's, like, politically it's inter- uninteresting. But the reason I find that so interesting is because... It's sort of uh, it's a huge bomb in the perspective of people who tend to uh, have a really tight association in their mind between uh, transgender politics and yeah. kind of radical left politics. Yeah, I mean, I know I know people who would say that they think um, transitioning genders or mm-hmm. basically any all varieties of sort of gender queer kind of yeah. lifestyle practices are inherently kind of radical left. Yeah. Uh, way of being that it's yeah. actual sort of resistance to capitalism. This kind of um, this kind of perspective. So to see someone like Caitlyn Jenner, uh, probably it's a. I, and I would have to be fair to say that uh, Caitlyn Jenner is the most famous trans person right now. Right. Oh, by um, a mile. I mean, I right. think like like I you know I. Yeah. Right. I, so I, just, I, I actually think in some ways like Caitlyn Jenner is probably the first. Trying to think of like any other celebrity person who's undergone gender transition. I can't even like think. Of, to me, I mean, Caitlyn Jenner is basically the equivalent of when Ellen DeGeneres came out. Like that probably was you're probably too young to remember that event. Mm-hmm. Were you or not? Um, yeah, I don't really remember that as like a culturally significant. I, rem- I re- yeah, I don't. Remember yeah, no, it's a ma- it's, I think to me, I think that's like a very serious milestone, right? Mm-hmm. That I think. Well, I'd say most. Like, to me, I'm like to me, I'm like mass culture. Mass pop culture actually matters because the way most people, mm-hmm. it's, it's mass, right? So, like when Ellen came out, she wasn't even like on a hit. She's kind of like on a middling <laughs> sitcom, right? I think she's like top thirty or so. I have no idea. It wasn't like a hit show. I remember like actually watching it and like I kind of thought it was funny, right? And then it was just like, uh, like it was kind. Of, it was very clearly managed very well and slickly. Right? What year would that have been? Oh, God. When Early 90s. Like, 94, 95, 96. Somewhere around there, like, mid-90s. And yeah. it was, like, a significant event, right? And there was a like, massive backlash against it, mm. too, right? Like, Pat Buchanan basically calling for the show to be banned and, right. you know, this kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, hmm. You know, so... So, do you, would you say that's the first... That was sort of the first most significant moment in kind of the process that would now uh, lead us to things like the legalization of gay marriage? Uh, I don't know if it's the first significant moment, right? But I think that, like, it, it's the moment at which I would say the, the the gay rights movement punctured through on a mass cultural level. It's a, To me, that's, like, a, not a significant... That's not, not a trivial barrier. There's certainly a lot of stuff before, right? Obviously, like, the gay rights movement starts in Stonewall. Right. You can kind of look at, like, early organizing in San Francisco in the 70s, early 80s, right? Like, Harvey Milk and... Yeah, and all, and all, yeah. all of that, right? I You know, obviously, like, a huge part of that story has got to be um, AIDS advocacy in the 80s. But, like, like to, to be... I don't know, like, for me, it's obviously a generational thing, and 
like one of the things I remember also from the early nineties was like, there's a Canadian, it's kind of like the crappy version of the new Republic. It's called Saturday night <laughs> magazine. And it, it would come with your globe and mail, which is like basically the Canadian equivalent of the mm. New York times. And there was this exchange between, I think it's David from and Andrew Sullivan. And it was a front page debate basically about gay marriage. Right. And, like in the for me, like being a suburban kid in Canada, you just pick this up, and like basically, I like had not thought of that. I think it was not a concept that even like come across me as like a possibility, right? But um, like this was like unthinkable. I, I can't even explain like how it's just like the idea that that you have same sex couples getting married. It wasn't like I was a pro or against it. It just was not a thing. You could right, think about right, right? right, right. <laughs> and so to me, I was like, "Oh yeah, I read that. I read both sides." Like, and I was like, "Well, I think Sullivan's right." Like, what? But to me, I was just like, "This is self-evidently like it's like a classic. It's a classic like uh, discourse ethics example of the force the better argument will win." And I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, <laughs> that seems that makes sense to me." And I kind of moved on with my life. But I kind of remember that as being kind of an early kind of puncture for me in that culture, and then certainly the Ellen DeGeneres thing is like, here's someone who had some prominence and their character, both the actor first comes out of the closet and the character in the TV show comes out of the closet. I think that really shifted the understanding of it. Right. Right. This kind of classic 1980s, the the necessity of coming out of the closet in order to normalize. Right. So it was kind of the, it was was perhaps one of the uh, most significant early moments of when, yeah, all of the sort of radical gay energy, sort of gay rights energy, uh, different kinds of trans rights energies up until then. Uh, it was kind of like a liberalizing of that basically in a sort of mainstream, uh, uh, puncture in some sense. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a, I call it a mainstream puncture moment. And there's also like significant backlash against it amongst like more radical, you know, people in the LGBT community, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, Andrew Sullivan's definitely a, he's a conservative, like a straight up conservative, but B you know, there's been a long-standing uh, LGBT critique of same-sex marriage as right. essentially trying to institutionalize, normalize, totally. discipline, yeah. right? You know, if you go read some of Foucault's, like, late stuff on this, he's kind of, he's clearly trying to push sexual politics in a very different direction mm-hmm. that just is, like, kind of completely mm-hmm. off the table now, mm-hmm. I'd say, in some interesting ways, right? Like, ultimately... Yeah, it was the, the, taming, role, it was the taming of, like, radical yeah. sexual politics. Yeah, like. exactly, right? Like, he, like some of his late late interviews kind of imagine something very different from what's ended up happening, right? So... Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Foucault yeah. definitely had a different vision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm all, so, you know, like, like it's also... Like, like the, but to me, like none of that, I was I wasn't aware of any of that till I got to graduate school and started we were reading like queer theory, right? Like until mm-hmm. I encountered that, like all those debates and struggles, like as a suburban kid growing up and you know, oh yeah, same. Montreal, I was just kind of like, oh you know, same. Like that's and so I, I kind of think I mean my sense is Caitlyn Jenner is the same kind of puncture moment for trans trans transgender, right? Yeah. So. Uh, but I don't, I, but it's the backlash is kind of like, to me, to me, to me, 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 I'm like, well, you know, how, I'm guessing basically like, it seems like there's been a consensus. Like, what's interesting to me is people who now are like, of course, same sex marriage should be legalized everywhere. Then it's like, but 
transgender stuff's completely wrong, right? There's like a weird backlash on that front, and I'm like, the, the, those people I don't quite get. And there's obviously some kind of visceral, which I think is also like there's obviously a visceral reaction against homosexuality. There's something that's not, it's basically irrational, for lack of a better word. Right. I feel like there's been very little backlash against Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, you, haven't, you haven't looked at my Facebook feed. Then. Well, but, but, but okay, <laughs> there's okay. like serious, like, but compared to what? Are, but compared to what? Uh, I'm saying historically, compared to um, what we would have expected in, let's say, something like uh, Caitlyn, Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner's uh, uh, sort of transition, imagine that happening in the, you know, in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Obviously, the backlash that I think we're seeing today is way, way less. And I think that's I think that's historically really relevant. Uh, I don't know if it is or not. I, I I think it's a weird moment where I mean she went straight to Vanity Fair. I mean the cover of Vanity Fair. Yeah. I mean that's like that's like a pretty welcoming landing. I think. <laughs> In a certain sense, I want to say yes. I but I mean like all these transgender bathroom bills, right? They're clearly mm-hmm. they're clearly only because of Caitlyn Jenner. Oh, so that's their response to yeah. it, right? I think it's before that. It's, again, it's like kind of like I'm that. not. You know, there's been transgender people for, well, forever, probably, right? Yeah, but it's yeah, all, yeah. And so it only becomes an issue in uh, 2016, the year after a very prominent celebrity transitions, right? Like, to me, like, that's a very clear uh, wedge politics attempt, right? Um, yeah, but I also feel like these bathroom bills are kind of, they're kind of, pathetic conservative attempts to kind of, it's like symbolic recuperation. Yeah. You know, like I, and I'm not belittling people who say that, you know, that that's really important because I see the way in which those, those bathroom bills are really important. And I take that seriously, but in another sense, one, one can say that compared to the, to the radical advances of sort of gay rights movement and and perceptions of transgender people today, um, these like bathroom bills in the scheme of things will probably be, they probably won't last long and they'll probably be, uh, yeah, I, I just see them as kind of symbolic attempts of conservatives to kind of uh, speak to the people who, fought, who who do still feel uncomfortable about this sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. who are a relatively small minority. That's decreas- yeah. decreasing, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's totally... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I clearly think on this one, the, like, the arc is kind of clearly... Uh, the arc of history, so you can kind of clearly see which direction it's going in, right? So... But I, but I am kind of surprised that the, that the backlash. I don't know quite why. Sometimes I get surprised at the backlash of these things, right? Like, yeah. Um, but it is interesting how much progress has been made on that front, and yet the world does not seem to, or does not. Well, it certainly does not seem in any way to be going in a sort of radical left direction that you would kind of expect from sort of the implied uh, relationships in the perspective of lots of radical left people. Um, like, it is just really interesting to see how consistent a certain kind of gay politics or trans politics uh, can go right into bed quite conveniently with the right wing. Oh, uh, that's not surprising me at all, right? It's, it's straight up negative liberty, right? Like, mm-hmm. to me, it's like it's basically understanding freedom as, as non-coercion, right? Or negative, like, freedom from, right? And so, especially in the U.S., I think all of these arguments are pretty... Um, like sympathetic, right? Like at the end of the day, the U.S. has a kind of libertarian leaning to it. They For sure, clearly yeah. Britain doesn't. Like that's one of the interesting kind of but cultural you, shock moments. Is I think Britain's more resistant to pure libertarianism than the but, U.S. is. But, but don't don't you think it's fair to say among the sort of left leaning people that you know? Yeah, there is this sort of assumption that 
gay rights, trans rights, um, is a kind of inherently left, it represents sort of left progress. Um, don't you think it's fair to say that that's a, that's a widely held, uh, sort of assumption? And in fact, it might, that, that, it's far from clear that that's the case. Uh, uh, okay, so I think there's an interesting, there's an interesting conjoining there, right? So you've got an identity claim conjoined with a rights claim, right? So notice that it's, you know, it's gay rights. I'd say that most of the radical left is kind of advanced these causes on identity politics grounds is in terms of like, we have to clear, create spaces for mm-hmm. people from minority identity backgrounds that have space to express themselves. Right. It's a like classic mm-hmm. left communitarianism, but the rights bit is just that that's the part that wins in the end. Right. Mm-hmm. It's that that's the argument that wins is not, it's not even acceptance of, I mean, I guess what this way, the rights part in the U.S., it strikes me that it's the, the right to get married is what wins first, and then out of that comes the identity acceptance. I think most people on the left, especially the radical left, thought it was acceptance of diverse identities first, kind of like new left politics, and mm. then even suspicion of the rights, right? If you even you read, like, prominent... Um, like not just Foucault, like someone like... You know, like even someone like Wendy Butler or some of the more kind of... Uh, uh, sorry, Wendy Brown, uh, or some of the kind of other prominent left political theory critiques in like the nineties and two thousands, they were deeply, deeply suspicious of the juridical move of the rights based move. Right. And kind of like fearing fearing exactly what's happened, which is kind of this neoliberal capture of yes. the gay rights movement, yeah. right? So, I, I totally agree. With so, that. like, like to me, I'm like, I, but to me, I'm like, it's the rights argument that was ultimately the winning one, not the identity claims one. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of how. Yeah, that's a good example of how uh, everything is always recuperated, right? yeah. and every sort of um, every sort of advancement of kind of human liberation is like quickly and almost automatically sort of recaptured by the, the institutional status quo and sort of made to work for it. Um, I think anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, it's true. I, I think it's kind of true. I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea what, I, to me, I'm like, I'm not, yeah, you seem kind of far more sanguine that like the, the transgender, I, to, part of me is like, it's not clear what the big, juridical fight is going to be about uh, transgender areas, right? There's, there's obviously a whole bunch of legal and rights issues, but they're so micro as to, I mean, I don't know, like, what's going to happen next? Like, you're going to be, like, is a backlash going to be your force to self-identify your gender based on your biological sex? Mm. I mean, to me, like, a lot of stuff seems like quite clunky mm. and unlikely to get anywhere and I think that any laws that would kind of prohibit transgenderism like in any way so basically you have like I mean like the level the, the level of kind of state encroachment I think even in very conservative places would kind of like what would the what would the state have to do to force gender identities right mm. Mm. but I do think that the I don't know how to put this I, I do think that like the the non-juridical element of transgender rights movement might be kind of a far nastier fight than I think you're thinking of it being, right? Mm. You know, like, I think that's part of, like, what the Black Lives Matter movement is, like, another example of an identity politics movement that, sure, okay, there's a story told in the U.S., you know, after the past 1964 Civil Rights Bill, there's no more 
racial injustice, right? And that's clearly patently false, but kind of finding ways to make the claims about those injustices has been very difficult. And the way in which even something like Black Lives Matter ends up leading to social and political change is not as clear, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. you know, at the demand of that movement, ultimately, like, how do you overthrow racism, right? And that's a that's a, diff- a far more, same thing, how do you end up overthrowing transphobia, which is a very different thing than Definitely. how do you get, make sure the state offers similar legal recognition to same-sex and opposite-sex couples. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with that. That's exactly the problem. But, um, yeah. Do you think it's bad that I, uh, do you think it's, what I said before that I don't read the news, do you think that's bad? Uh, no, why? <laughs> well, because I feel like there's this sort of, uh, I, I feel sort of normative pressure to read the news. I feel like, especially as sort of like, uh, someone who's supposed to be educated and who's supposed to be a, a, st- a student of politics, that there's sort of baked into that a normative expectation that I should read the news. And I think that that's generally true in our civic culture. Um, it's sort of, uh, assumed or presumed that an educated person should be highly aware of what's going on in the world. And I've kind of self-consciously chosen uh, to cultivate a different intellectual life. Uh, just uh, For me, it, it's just that I can't... Uh, like We ultimately have very little time to read um, mm-hmm. at length, uh, stuff that we really want to read and be up on. And I just would rather read good, big books uh, and sort of cultivate that mm-hmm. uh, kind of like intellectual lifestyle mm-hmm. rather than give my free time to reading news every day. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's kind of, I think very few people would say that, or if that was the case for people, they would not admit it because we're supposed to pretend that we're up on the news, even if we're not. Uh, I don't know. So, but do you think you don't know the news at all? I mean, I, you get it, right? They're osmosis. And that's kind yeah. of why I don't read the news because yeah. it gets to me. Uh, I mean, I think most people actually don't read the news. I think most people read opinion pieces. That's kind of my, like, if just like, if you take, and I think that's fair to say, Definitely. if you take what most people share on social media as indicative of, like, what they're reading, news-wise, it's probably 90% opinion pieces, and then 7% breaking news, and then 3% perhaps interesting. And a terrifying amount stories. of them don't actually read it. I mean, they've done studies on this stuff. Oh, in terms of they don't share stuff and not read what they're yeah, reading? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just read the headline. And, I mean, they've done studies that... Uh, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but, yeah, that would be a terrifying percentage of, of the people just reading headlines. Um, at least I remember being very struck by it. But they've, they've even done studies where they look at sort of the eye movement of people reading screens, yeah. uh, and, and they find that a lot of... The, the standard default way of reading is not what you think it is. It's not like reading each word from left to right. Uh, people have this characteristic movement of the eye that start, they'll read sort of the first line. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can kind of literally see their eye scanning down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they'll kind of like look for a conclusion or something like that. Um, which is as you would expect. Um, I don't know. But is that like really bad? I mean, I think like most, like the standard newspaper article format is like everything important is dumped in the first two paragraphs and it sure. trails off, right? Sure. I, I sure. actually always like reading to the end because I find like a lot of the interesting nuggets are kind of just buried at the end of like long, long news stories. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what's there to know about the news? The news is also ultimately just disempowering. Like, what can you do about any of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you read about Syria and you're like, it's terrible. What? <laughs> Like what? What can I do? Like yeah. go 
like the probably the extent I could either I guess donate some stuff to some refugees in Calais or go participate in some march in London. So the extent of it. I feel like often the news doesn't actually give me the kind of information that I'm looking for. I mean, especially if you have a sort of anti-system perspective, like a political yeah. perspective, where what you're really interested in is, uh, yeah, how, how social systems have changed over time and how, how to make them change over time or to understand the ways in which they're changing over time currently. Yeah. If that's what you're interested in, the news just simply doesn't actually contain much information for that yeah. pursuit because um, you're only looking at tiny little changes day to day from within a system. So I think that's actually kind of why I don't read the news, uh, because it's just not the information about the world that I'm trying to uh, cultivate. Yeah. But it leads me to being sometimes really kind of socially maladjusted. Um, because, I mean, you know, just because it, it, it is just culturally, sociologically true that, uh, you know, educated people, especially if they have like, you know, whatever fancy fucking like intellectual uh, professional jobs of any kind, mm-hmm. um, you know, in social gatherings, it's, it, you're expected to uh, be up on uh, the news. And when you're just shamelessly not, yeah. like I always am, uh, often feel like a crazy person. So was, was like the news a thing in your household growing up? Did your parents no, read the news? Not at all. Yeah. So I mean, it's probably like a, a class background. Yeah, thing. totally. Like, like, like growing up and it was like, my, my parents got two newspapers every day, CBC, like basically Canadian broadcast, like basically BBC or NPR, always on and always on like the news network or the the information shows right so it's kind of like from a time i like i can remember just very socialized into news and information right so it's yeah. just kind of a thing yeah see i didn't have that at all i mean we i mean obviously sometimes that sort of the nightly news would be on yeah. like cnn but i mean that's almost not yeah. the news really um well cnn so it's so like you so what, what was your parents like but that was consumption a, but that was only occasionally i mean yeah of course every now and then cnn or something like that would be on the tv uh, but they had no particular uh, news consumption uh, routines. I mean, yeah. Um, and but that's just because they're kind of normal, like working people with low incomes yeah. and and kids and uh, yeah. so yeah. Th- there's that, but so it's not just that, but it's what you watch or what you do instead of reading the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like we would watch, you know, basically like the crappiest TV around, like. Um, I mean, I remember watching... Well, actually, I mean, I say crappy. Some of it was quite interesting. I mean, they kind of don't make TV like they used to. I remember I used to watch, like, Cops with my dad. Yeah. Like, that show is fucked up. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, like, it's really <laughs> fucked I mean, yeah. I used to watch it when I was a kid. Like, really, yeah, no, really it's young. Propaganda. It's propaganda. Um, it's total race propaganda, right? Yeah. It really yeah. is. It's yeah. like... Yeah, definitely racist, and but also just generally kind not, of not uh, racist. It's race propaganda. It's, like, yeah. it's even more... It's not even, like, racist and it's biased. It's basically yeah. telling a story to white working class Americans that blacks are dangerous. Definitely. Right. That's yeah. the whole point of that show. I agree. I totally agree with that. Um, and also, and also though, just people, uh, just people who are really down and out and have fucked yeah. up lives. Uh, like including white people. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah no, but, really, but lower yeah. class white people. Yeah, right? of course. It's very much like, try, it's very much a show I think about trying to police, well, literally police, uh, and, and figuratively, yeah. <laughs> police a uh, um, a kind of order that protect a hierarchy in the U.S. Right? Of course, no doubt. But uh, yeah, um, I, I remember the main thing I took from it was just sort of uh, being terrified um, because there's also this sort of obsession with crime, right? In, yeah. in sort of the wealthy countries, uh, people have vastly over uh, over exaggerated senses of of crime threat. Uh-huh. Um, 
And that show definitely fucking cultivated that in me. It's like, damn, this world is filled with, like... Uh, at the time, I was young. I didn't know, right? So I just thought, yeah. it, I just thought it was, like, bad people. Uh, you know? Yeah. Um, but then you... Yeah, it's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that show is terrible. I think it's, like, the worst... It's quite possibly the worst. I think, I think like, historians and the like, social historians of the future will look back and hold that show up as, like, can you believe the fucked up shit they use as propaganda in the U.S. in the 90s and early 2000s? And that's going to be, like, article number one. Yeah, I used to watch that shit all the time. <laughs> there's a good, uh, there's this, like, really good mockumentary called The Confederate States of America. Have you ever seen that? Uh, no. It's, like, an alternate history where the Confederacy wins and then it's set in, like, contemporary U.S., like, late 90s, early 2000s, and cops there is all about runaway slaves. Mm. And what's interesting about it is, like, the the content's no different. It's just the crime is not drugs. Mm. It's just runaway slaves, right? Mm. So... It is kind of interesting. I feel like uh, cultures of crime have changed in interesting ways. Like, do you ever read the... I forget the author. Who's the author who wrote those books kind of popular among, yeah, like, fucking teenage, like, white boys and shit. Uh, I forget the author. Um, like, Tex was one of them, or, no, am I getting that wrong? Or, like, Rumblefish? I don't know, he's both. You never, no, okay. Um, I forget the author, I'll look it up later, but, um, yeah, I forget when they would have been set. I read them, and I was into them in high school. But it's basically kind of about, um, yeah, kind of rough and tumble, um, badass. Kind of like John, uh, James Dean. Yeah. Kind of like... Uh, badass American young male yeah. type thing, mm-hmm. type culture, and how they would have gang fights with like yeah. knives and stuff like that. Uh, and and yeah, so it was sort of like this. But but I don't even remember what exactly uh, what exactly was the culture that it was describing. Like I didn't I didn't quite grow up with that. I think that was kind of like my my dad kind of grew up a little bit like that mm-hmm. uh, in a way that by the time I got to teenage years was not at least where I was geographically or whatever. Uh, I didn't really know of that kind of stuff still existing. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Like white kids and gangs? Yeah, and sort of the, that mythology uh, that I think... Is, am I, is, that a, is that a fair connection? Someone like James Dean is sort of... You know, I'm imagining, yeah. you know, I'm imagining like, a, like a, a muscly young American man in uh, blue jeans and a t-shirt with his uh, sleeves rolled up. He's got like cigarettes in his, in his uh, white shirt sleeves yeah. that are rolled up. And he's like a badass guy with a, uh, you know, a, a, a nice old American car that's really fast and loud and just kind of goes around making trouble. Uh, kind of, yeah, a, a rebel without a cause, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when, do, what exactly is the culture that that is um, describing or coming from? Oh, 1950s culture. But when I, did it go, when did it stop? Uh, I guess a good question. I, my hunch is with the war on drugs, right, is that... Um, like shit, like cops. In other words, <laughs> put a, put a rest to that. Uh, no, I, I, my, I mean, I mean, let's put it this way: like, the phenomenon of gangs, I think, is basically universal, right? Yeah. It's basically, yeah. I mean, even like, again, it's. I'm sure like some anthropologists probably got like way more interesting ways to approach it, but I'm like, you know, it's what yeah. disaffected teenagers just kind of end up forming cliques. And they have their own kind of interesting rules or ways to enforce it. Right. Uh, they were like weird versions. I mean, I grew up like pretty suburban, upper middle class neighborhood, right? So, Montreal West. And even there, there's like the kids a little bit older than me. They had like a little clique. They called themselves the Montreal West Falcons. And they were just like... Did they fight? 
uh, I think they went around and tagged some random stuff, and they were kind of bad skateboarders, and they probably, I don't know, probably did a little bit of light drug use, mm. and you know, right. <laughs> the, scope, the scope of it. Uh, I, they weren't doing anything, but, you know, it's coming from that background. But I think that that's just like a natural social bonding, probably at that age, and then, yeah. I don't know, I suspect that that gets, you know... I, I have no idea how that morphs into, like, there, yeah. modern gangs. But, like, you know, like it's, it's pretty global. There's, like, uh, uh, this basketball team I follow, Oklahoma City Thunder, their star center. I was just reading a profile of their, their center, this guy, Stephen Adams, who's from New Zealand, and he basically, you know... Like, there's a, there's a very standard trope in NBA kind of profiles of African-American basketball players who kind of grew up in rough backgrounds and how like basketball pulled them out from mm-hmm. being part of some kind of street gang. Right. And here's a white guy from New Zealand and he's got a very similar kind of story. So it's kind of a, a universal, mm. I, I, yeah. I, you know, you certainly can study gangs all over the world. Right. So to me, I'm like, it's, I think in the U S the rise of the war on drugs meant that a certain kind of gang, mostly black and now Latino gangs, right. Are dangerous and hence policed and probably, I don't know what happened to white gangs. It's an interesting question. Right. The reason I, yeah, the reason I ask is because I think you're totally right that some sort of gang formations are pretty universal in sort of human uh, societies, but they do change interestingly and importantly over, over time. And that's kind of what I'm interested in. Like I'm, I always, I'm always very fascinated by uh, instances of kind of decreasing general kind of cultural rebelliousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like often what I'm thinking a lot about lately. Oh, see, the um, class. Well, so yeah, I mean, precisely, yeah, maybe not on average or in aggregate, uh, yeah. but you can definitely find lots of examples, interesting examples where in the 50s, different forms, not, and, and obviously sort of radical protest is one mm-hmm. example that I'm interested in, but when you look across society otherwise, you, you also see interesting uh, sort of pockets of society in which a certain kind of rebelliousness existed yeah. in the 50s and in some degree in the 60s. And then starting in the 70s, um, but I think often with different dynamics that I'm not aware of, but I'm, that's why I'm asking, that's what I'm interested in, where it starts to just decrease. And, and ultimately, a lot of these rebellious cultures get, I think, kind of pacified and ultimately sort of uh, blotted out. Um, so that, I think that would be an example of one. And I'm not saying it's like good or cool. Like, I don't think whatever the reality that sort of, uh, you know, 1950s, uh, like rebel, uh, white young men, uh, like whatever reality that pointed to that sort of image, uh, pointed to, I'm not saying it's good necessarily. I, I, I I'm not making any judgment on that front, but it is just interesting how it's been kind of snuffed out. Um, and where did it go and why? And I actually think that sort of, I think I was originally uh, inspired to think of this because we were talking about cops. I think that su- cer- certain sort of cultural changes like television shows like cops um, are able to, to kind of effectively exert a kind of pacifying uh, power over these types of people. And I, the reason I'm thinking this because I kind of grew up at this juncture. Like my dad kind of had like a rough and tumble kind of like young white male mm. kind of like uh, early years in his life mm-hmm. as a teenager um, you know, was in the military and, uh, his father was in the military. So they were kind of traveling military family, uh, and kind of getting into a lot of trouble, you know, th- and just like kind of old school things that were associated with, um, restless young white men yeah. getting into trouble, things like gambling, things like fighting. Yeah. Um, these were all like parts of my dad's teenage years, mm-hmm. um, you know, cars, gambling, fighting, um, running away from home. Like my dad, like ran away from home yeah. for a while, you know, that kind of, just that culture, mm-hmm. um, 
I was enough, I grew up with enough contact to, to that culture to know that it was a thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, when I grew up as a teenager, I was growing up in a culture where all of those things were, uh, in different ways, whether it be socially or culturally or legally mm-hmm. or legally, uh, kind of, uh, discouraged and prohibited in a sense to the point that I couldn't really do those things feasibly. I kind of wanted to, or I kind of glamorized it or was attracted yeah. to those ways of rebelling, but they weren't actually available to me. Um, and, and I look at shows like cops and I wonder if, um, just as one example of, of, you know, obviously more complicated things, there has been this kind of cultural snuffing out of, of perhaps all different kinds of forms of just, uh, rebellious culture and in the different ways they manifest in different like pockets of society. Uh, I wonder. Do you think? Maybe. Do you think that might be? I, I, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so a couple of things I'm wondering is that, uh, like, like a pro- One thing I suspect happened is that the rise of after-school activities is like, and if you actually go, because I've done like the coaching certification stuff, as I've gone into the UK sports whatever, Coach Sports UK, so I got, like, all their propaganda, right? And oh, so, yeah, I'll have to ask you about that later. Yeah, you asked me about that a bit. But um, one of the things that's striking to me is that, because basically most youth sports coaches are volunteers, so it's kind of very much pitched to you as volunteerism, making a difference in lives of youth. But it's also, there's, like, a subtext, not said explicitly, but the subtext is, um, you know, we give them activities they can do and it's good for their self-esteem and for all this other stuff but it's probably also very much a, a kind of concerted effort to make sure they're not doing shit it's control right? yeah, yeah it's control and, and it's and one of the things that's interesting if you like, do the coaching thing there's a lot of emphasis put on stopping deviant behavior amongst teenagers in a sports coaching environment right like mm. what do you do with misbehaving so i think there's like a there's been a lot of effort right down to that micro level of like you're running a coaching session on some sports skill how do you make sure that they're not being deviant there mm. that if you think of those micro practices right down to that level that probably aggregates up to you know them not joining street gangs and stuff right yeah yeah and like there's you know there's tons of money put in in both, you know, the, the, to me, okay, A, like, obviously the middle class now is hyper, cons- like, the, the kids I coach, they're all hyper-programmed in the sense that, like, they've got five other activities demanding on their time all the time, and our biggest headache is, okay, how do we, like, right now in May, we're scheduling for next, you know, next winter, right, because I'm sure, like, any other activity they're doing, they're also being hyper-scheduled, and there's almost this weird anxiety about not letting them have much time of their own to do stuff, right? I think that's pretty new. Yeah. And I think it plays into a whole bunch of parental anxieties about, like, if they're not... Like, doing stuff's good for their CVs, good for their health. It's, like, all the things that parents are taught to be anxious about. I think it's fucking terrible for them. It's, like, it's a thing. But so I suspect that part of it's just, like, there's been a pacification of teenagers through Mm -hmm. extracurricular activities of any sort. And that's if you're lucky, right? (laughs) You know, the other way. A, a, you're lucky, right? Like, my suspicions then that, like, at the the lower class level, then there there probably is, there probably is and has been a lot of resources dumped into extracurricular activities there. And then, obviously, there's just policing, right? Right. Like, policing or other kinds of punishments. And medication. And medi- oh, yeah, medication's the other one, right? Like, everyone's jacked up on whatever yeah. now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why I want to, if I ever have kids, I want to, of course, I'm sure this is probably impossible, but if I ever have kids, I always think I want to, I would want them to basically 
uh, have unlimited amounts of free time, uh, be encouraged to do whatever they want, mm. um, unmedicated, and uh, hopefully try to just keep them out of jail. Yeah. Um, do you think that could work? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any kids. I mean, do you think that's a good parenting strategy? Sure. I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that, like, it's a, okay, A, it's very, I don't have kids, so I don't obviously have to have the anxieties of, like, being responsible for a human life, right? Like, I think that that in of itself is, like, mass anxiety producing. I know. That's one the main reason I think I don't want to have kids. <laughs> so, I'm like, my friends are doing it, I'm like, all, all respect to that. I do think that, especially in the middle class, there's, like, this massive anxiety that, um, you know, if my child doesn't hit an A on their A-level, or if they aren't doing 20 extracurricular activities, they're going to be a total failure and become a drug addict and be like, you know... I mean, it's kind hooker. of true, though. It's kind of true, though, right? It's like... Yeah, if you, if, I think if it's if you total don't... bullshit. I think we were saying that before, right? We're saying, I mean, to me, I'm like, the dice are basically loaded. It's like, you, you basically, what you are is largely a function. Like, like, like 95% of your outcomes probably determined by what social okay, background point, you're yeah. going into, right? So I'm like, these are middle-class people... And, like, yeah, if your kid does this or doesn't do that, right, it's going to be fine. But if you're growing right? up, like, on the cusp of, like, a class barrier or, yeah. or in, in lower working classes, yeah. it is either you either, like, you either get, success, like, quote-unquote successful in some way or you're fucked. Um, and so yeah. I think that anxiety is real. Like, that anxiety is based on uh, really nasty realities of contemporary just fucking capitalism. Yeah. And but my, that's fucked my, up. That's yeah, fucked up. So. Like, but my observation is parents in those backgrounds are a lot more chill than, like the ones who are the most neurotic are the ones of the kids who are like the safest. Right. But right? that, but, but that is not because they know of these sort of realities in the contemporary society that are really shitty and they really suck. And it's because nah. they're, they're, they're sort of terrified, even though it's unrealistic, yeah. they're terrified that their child might, uh, possibly fall into this uh, pocket of society that they're kind of internally, kind of secretly horrified even exists and, and really kind of guilty about, really yeah. kind of anxious about. And I think... Yeah, I think that, yeah, so yeah, I think that, that, that's part of it. I, I, but I also think there's like a really nasty status anxiety too. And I think like it's obvious to me when we do the open days, right? Where it's like, you know, it's pretty clear what Southampton is <laughs> as a school, right? We're, we're, you know, pretty good. We're like... You know, I guess we kind of always end up ranked 15th every time I look at a survey, right? And there's there's a very funny thing when I interact with parents where they make it clear that we're the safety school. And they, they know their kid can't get to Oxbridge or Cambridge. But there's a certain kind of parent who's also like, well, we'd really like to be like four notches up, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever, who's four notches ahead of us on the tables? I don't know. Like, mm. I, I, I can't even, you know... And you're kind of the safety school, but there's also, like, one that's below you they're also looking at, right? And it's kind of like, you know. And and to me, I'm like, honestly, any of those three schools getting a politics degree at them is going to make zero difference (laughs) in your child's, like, social status outcome, right? It's like moving up one place. And there's, like, hyper-anxiety about whether or not you get an A or a B in your politics degree. See, this is why I feel like I couldn't have kids because... I, I feel like I just don't, these are the things you have, it, it's all, and it, I think there's also this thing where it's like, if you're not really concerned about all these things, mm-hmm. then you're a bad parent. You feel like you have to be sort of hyper concerned because that's evidence or a signal that, that, that you care and that you're, you're trying to give them the best. But I could, I couldn't do that. I feel like I'm afraid that if I had a kid, my attitude towards all this bullshit would mm-hmm. be so glib and uncaring 
it would be perceived as glib and uncaring. Yeah. Um, that I feel like I would be seen as like a pariah, and I would probably make like a really shitty, like a really yeah. troublesome kid. Um, and I feel like so. I mean, I really admire people who have kids. I think it's I think it's fucking badass, and it's inc- I'm impressed that pe- that anyone can do it. Um, but personally, I feel like I just I don't know. I just it requires you to care about things that I just objectively don't care about. Like I don't really give a shit if my student, like if my if my child, um, like goes to a good university or goes to like a, a middling university, uh, or or shit. You're university. not a child. So it's an it's an abstraction, right? But if I no, but what I'm saying is, if I had one, I still just wouldn't give a shit um, because I, I don't know. because I don't want to. I just don't want to live a life where I have to be really invested in what we all sort of know as thinking yeah. critical adults are, are bullshit differences. Yeah. But to have a child, you to give them a good shot in life, you have to actually really care about all those bullshit differences. And to me, that just sounds like, I, I don't know how you can live an intellectually clarified life <laughs> when you, no, I, I'm not being critical or judgmental. Yeah. I'm honestly saying I would like to, hopefully someday I'll have a guest who has children and they can give me an interesting perspective on this. Yeah. I honestly don't know. I'm, I'm honestly asking, I don't understand how you can have an intellectually clarified existence and mm-hmm. sort of life and, and move about the world in an intellectually clarified way when to care for this uh, child's opportunities, you have to take so seriously and really know and understand and, and to some degree believe in um, all of these distinctions that we know damn well are really stupid, violent, hurtful, oppressive, uh, and ultimately based on lots of bullshit criteria that we don't actually believe in, to take those seriously as part of your, your everyday life world. I don't, I don't understand how you can sustain sort of, uh, yeah, intellectual clarity. I would like to know if, I'd like to know if they, if people do have tactics for how to do that. Presumably, you know, the smart, interesting, like radical intellectual people that we know and, and admire who do have kids, surely there must be ways of doing it. I just can't see them for the life of me. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons I feel like I, I can't even think about kids right now. What do you think? <laughs> about whether or not you have kids? Question mark. I just make, sta- uh, I just put, I I make statements and then put question marks. You shouldn't have kids unless you're really committed to having kids. And it sounds like at this juncture you're not. So you probably shouldn't right now. Some people would say you should just have kids like whenever you have them by accident. I guess. I mean, that's, that's another way to be, right? I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of kids who have been had by accident in this world. So Now you're you making one have kids. It's reverse psychology. You supported my Dude, opinion, you so can that. do whatever you want to do. I'm, I don't, I've learned not to advise people when not to have kids and also not to advise them on their parental child-rearing strategies. But I need advice. <laughs> About what? Whether to have kids. From me. I want to know. Why, your, why are you asking? <laughs> shouldn't you ask well, Aria, your, your partner, if she wants to have kids? Well, obviously whether or not we chose to have kids together would be one question. Oh. It is a separate question whether... Right. No, no, in all seriousness, I feel like uh, people in partnerships or marriages or whatever, I mean, I just feel, I'm not judging anyone, I'm just saying, I feel like the ideal would be, don't both people have to decide kind of on their own independently, if that's something that they really want out of their life first, and then you kind of make those judgments and feelings communicate, and you see where you land where you land, and where you end up in a, in a shared perspective. I feel like you have to have that independent judgment first, mm-hmm. um, and Ari and I are both kind of at a state where we're... We're just thinking about it. We really don't have... Like, yeah. we really have not made firm decision uh, in favor or against. Mm-hmm. I guess by inertia, we're leaning towards against, precisely because you said, you know, we wouldn't do it probably uh, unless we knew we really wanted to. And since we obviously don't know we really want to, we're probably nowhere near having kids. But um, I, that's why, in all sincerity, I'm kind of... I'm asking... I often ask people for people's advice 
Um, so I really want an answer from you, yes or no, whether you are suggesting I should have kids. Uh, or not. Whether you should have kids. Whether I should want kids as a person. <laughs> I mean, you should want what you want. I don't know. But is it smart to have kids? Is it desirable to have kids? Uh, I mean, we've chosen not to have kids. Uh, I don't really regret that. Okay. But I think I know a lot of people, friends of mine who... Like, I, I have friends of mine who would really very much like to have kids and for a number of reasons are unable to and that makes them very sad. Hmm. So, you know. Right, right. Um, and then I have people who have kids and it's the best thing ever and I have other people who have kids and they've told me they regret it. Hmm, really? So, but they didn't regret it at the time. That's, so That's deep. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just like, I, I, I think like a friend of mine, she said, something pretty funny to me which was like why would you even debate about it either do it or don't and you can't really know how you're going to feel about it anyway and you can't even be confident where your relationship with your partner is going to be so you may as well just do whatever because you're assuming i mean here's the thing you're assuming i mean to assume you even have control over that decision and all the consequences it's just completely absurd right (laughs) it's like it's just because we happen to live in a moment with birth control that it's even kind of thought of as a possibility of a right. possible decision, right? right? So, okay. So, but you, you said know. you said you do not regret the choice to not have kids. Uh, no. So you're happy with the decision yeah. you, you made. Yeah. And, uh, you and Alice yeah. made. And uh, but okay. So if you're happy with that decision, then you should want me to make that decision also. Why? And so explain to me why. Well, no, I, if I decided to just, I mean, not expect any, that's like such a bad, bad logical error there. No, I, I, no, like. no, no, I think, no, I think, I think, I, it, I think that, no, I honestly think, like, why, like, it's, that's like saying, uh, I decided to have a McFlurry last night <laughs> instead of drinking, so that means I think everyone on the planet, should, I'm not, I'm not, like, imposing it as some kind of Kantian categorical imperative. Right, I understand that, and that's right. very kind of you and, respe- and respectful of, of me and my autonomy. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like you, you. I feel like you want me to tell you what to do. No, well, I don't tell you what. To, I mean, no, I, no. What I, I what I like, what I like is receiving from people their most um, earnest uh, sort of explanation or, or defense yeah. of the choice of the good choices right. they have made. I'll tell you exactly um, what to do. Yeah. Right. You and Ari should not have kids, but you should fire up Tinder and go and have a lot of drunk Tinder dates, unprotected sex, and then potentially father numerous childs and just become a deadbeat dad. Are you serious? That does not sound like, are you, are you serious? Idea. That sounds like a terrible life advice. Why? Why? Take my advice, then. Because I love Arya. Yes, I, but, I but here's, Arya. like, you get the best of both worlds, right? You don't have to actually raise a child. I mean, you'll be a deadbeat dad and a total scumbag, and everyone will hate you, right? But <laughs> you are spending off your genetic material. No, sex terrifies me. I don't want to do that. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> uh, that, no, so... I think that that would not work for me. I mean, wait, uh, why don't, but no, seriously, no. you're you're being you're being you're kidding now. Well, be, I be, just think that's that's another way to be, right? Yeah, but no, but be real with me. Tell me, like, if you're happy with the decision you made to not have kids, you can also. Here's another thing you, you should do. tell me why I should. All right, here's tell another. Me why I not have here's kids. another idea. Here's another idea. This no one, see, idea. This is no, 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 no one makes idea. these arguments. No, no. Okay. All right, okay. So you should go and donate your sperm at a sperm bank, okay? And then your genetic material will be spread, but you won't have to be responsible for raising the child. Why would I want that? I don't know. What, what do you want out of children? 
That's what I'm asking you to tell me. Like, what? what I can't answer that. that. All right, all right. If you, if you, okay, maybe. So it sounds to me it's not about like passing on your wonderful genes. I have no desire for that. Okay, so then maybe you personally, and not Ari, just you, should like adopt an unwanted child. Okay, so why should and I like do an, that? an older one, not like a little cute baby, but you know, you should just go find like a child, a teenager in foster care or whatever. Okay, so why should I do that? Then you're like helping someone out who needs help. Sounds like so much work, though. <laughs> well. Lots of things at work. Um, okay. No, so these are interesting alternatives, which I thank you for. Mm-hmm. Um, but on just on the, the specific point about whether you should have a baby or not, it's interesting because I feel like nowadays, like people, we're so kind of liberal and respectful of each other uh-huh. that we've, we, you know, we, we let people be and we, we, we don't want to judge and we don't want to, uh-huh. you know, yeah. Uh, and, and that's widely seen as sort of the, the nicest way to treat people and the most respectful, which is understandable and I, and I like that. But on a certain level, it makes us incapable of giving advice to each other sometimes. You know, like I really would like to hear from all different kinds of people. I want people to tell me vigorously why they think something I I might do uh, would be good or bad for me. That's what I kind of like about the conservative kind of like uh, conservative cultures of like tradition and shit where like Uh people where people do actually just honestly believe that certain traditions are uh, really good Mm -hmm. and, and and they will speak frankly and honestly about their, yeah, just deep confidence that that's obviously how it should be. That's obviously what you should do. Um, Because even if you disagree, it's at least nice to get strong signals, to get clear signals from people about what they think someone should do. And it's hard to get those. Um, So as I'm doing right now, like I often, Mm -hmm. I often go out of my way to try to to stoke people into giving me the strongest version of their opinions about things. Uh And people are so nice that people often won't do it. But in fact, that's actually really hurtful to me and to, and to, and to all the people around you because we actually need to hear these strong signals from each other to know which way to go. I feel like, I mean, I'm 29 uh-huh. and I have, I literally don't know uh, uh-huh. whether or not I want to have kids. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty unhealthy and kind of, that's kind of, I'm kind of sick in, in a sense, like to be, to be this old and, um, it, and to just simply be completely undecided. For like lack of for lack of sort of uh, knowledge of uh, sort of the base my basic perception of, of the coordinates of this question, mm-hmm. I feel like that is a that is a kind of really late form of immaturity that I have. Um, but I don't feel like it's my fault because I feel like I just don't have enough signals from people about what are the good reasons for and against. So I'm resentful against the way my society has deformed me. I don't think, why do you think, all right, I don't think 29 is too late. No. I have kids. But it's weird that I have no opinion on the matter. I know many people who didn't have any opinion on having kids at 29. Right? Yeah. Okay, but does that just mean there are more people unhealthy like me and kind of like ignorant and immature at an old age? Or does it mean that uh, it's actually normal and fine and healthy? Uh... I think it's normal, fine, and healthy. I think that most... Let's put this way. I still no. think... The, you don't think so? Well, no, I... I mean, I, to me... All right, here's, here's my view. I think most people who have kids today in kind of the standard nuclear family format do it almost unreflectively. Right? I, think, I think... I honestly think that most people yeah. just kind of do what's expected. Sure. And so, at the standard nuclear bourgeois expectations that... You know, you go get a university degree, get a career, couple with someone, get married, have kids, 
whatever, right? Let's kind of follow that standard format, right? right? Uh, I think that, and so for most people, they don't even think about it reflectively. It's just, that's, you just do it because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Whereas uh, anyone who kind of at least questions that, I think to me is kind of, at least, or done it reflectively as opposed to unreflectively, right. I think's kind of more... Uh, I don't know for lack of a better term. Like they're, they're I want to say more advanced. It's a bit. It's not quite right the way it were. But to me, at least, that's something good. Like whatever you do, it should have been done reflectively. Right? Okay, that's but, what. That's what but I then, the, the flip side's this. Yeah. Like I also don't. I also think like the idea that there's choice. I think that can be a total myth too. Like, like you know, you could just like I said, like the condom breaks, or you're just drunk and have unprotected sex, and sure. you bring it. You you know, create a child, and that then. You know, yeah. raise a whole bunch of issues that are beyond your control, right? Yeah. Okay, I, then, you know, have people respond to that's kind of varied. But, you know, so I know people have kind of ended up in that situation, right? I think that the idea that you're, I should put this, there's a way in which you're expected to be the author of your own life and responsible for all these big decisions that's also kind of overdetermined by other forces as well. So the note yeah. I, I realize I'm saying two completely contradictory things no, there. Are ones that there's lots of pressure for you to, to fit into some kind of set of boxes and the others that like your choice are ultimately there's the result of a lot of forces, but okay. Fair point. I mean, I definitely see the perspective in which, uh, just being reflective and careful about the life choices you make. It can be seen as, as a good thing, uh, as a positive thing, but from a slightly different angle, one could all, I mean, we're also, it's also kind of from an evolutionary perspective. It's kind of like a sickness, right? <laughs> it's like, uh, perhaps, perhaps thinking about it, mm-hmm. uh, for so long is actually a form of, uh, insanity, uh, because it's like basic, it's kind of basic human reproductive function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I should at least have some sort of, um, judgment or kind of, my, my, my sort of perspective on my priorities in life mm-hmm. and what I should be doing with my life uh, should be at least clearly defined enough. I should be, I should be, a, I, sh- I feel like I should be in touch with them enough mm-hmm. that I would at least at this stage in my early adulthood um, feel like a judgment one way or the other. All right. I, feel, I feel like it's a right. form of like mental sickness. For you. All right, so you have, to, you have to befriend some people who've just had kids and they'll tell you to have kids even though they're miserable. Mm. Do they? So yeah, I don't, I don't even have those. I don't even have those. Well, you're like you're not that old, right? It's like it's kind of like standard. No, I have. I know lots of fr- I know lots of people with kids. I have yeah. friends with kids, um, but everyone is so polite and kind, and no one would ever tell anyone how to live. Oh, um, it's too bad. It is too bad. I think. I think. I, okay, a couple things. I think you and Ari are still young, so it's not. You're not in an age bracket yet where that becomes an open issue. I think that in your thirties. Well, actually, to be more precise, when areas in her 30s, that will become a very serious issue, you'll be asked. Kind of, sometimes very directly, sometimes not. And then, when you hit 40, then you're kind of written off again. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of like, 40, like, I guess you're not going to have kids. And then, like, actually the absence of kids, people become very polite again. And I, I assume that most people think that we don't have kids because there's something defective with Alice's ovaries or something. Or at least that's a possibility, and so people get a bit hushed about it also. But when I'm 40... Or, I, you're, or you're an immoral, selfish bastard who refuses to have kids. But I, I don't know. For me, I feel like between now and when I turn 40 over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. 11 years, um, yeah. no, no one's ever going to ask me if I'm going to have kids. Oh, you'll be asked. I get asked all the time. But I don't see that many people. 
Who? Like, I just don't hang out with that many people. Well, you would ask me that. <laughs> but you're still young. What I'm saying is that like, that was, like, a non-issue in our 20s. Because I think everyone's like, oh, of course you have kids. I think in the 30s it becomes... When are you? It actually says very specifically to when are you planning to have kids? Okay. And then when you hit forty, it stops being asked because I think people dawn that you're not likely to have kids, and that uh, again it becomes one of either two things, and a lot of people start to default assume there's something wrong with your ability to read, like something biologically right. wrong, or even worse, you're a selfish bastard who want to have kids. Okay, I think I've, I think I've pinpointed the larger issue that I'm kind of uh, dancing around, probably uh-huh. in a kind of boring way. The, the larger, more interesting question, I think, is basically, I don't, I just don't understand anymore how people learn, how children learn to become adults. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand the pathways for that occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like in a lot of, cause, because in a lot of ways, I feel like I still have not uh, learned much about how to become an adult. I feel like I'm basically... Uh, learning everything I know about how to live as an adult. Uh-huh. I, I learned it up literally by looking up extremely specific questions on Google. Um, and I don't... And mm-hmm. so th- these larger questions that it's hard to Google, I, <laughs> I don't know the answer to them. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can't Google... You can't Google... Uh, you can't Google the answer to moral dilemmas. Right, but that's how I've taught myself every other thing about how to uh, be an adult. <laughs> that's a weird way to teach yourself. Well, no, but no, but no, but no, no, no. But. <laughs> that's like a definite generation. I mean, I know why you did that, and I definitely do that too. It's like if, if I need to sharpen knives, I'll be like, oh, here's how I Google how you sharpen. Like, if there's a skill around the house addressing a problem, I'll definitely Google it. But, like, when I was in my 20s, the internet was not rich enough with that kind of information that that was even a possibility. Okay. But here's the okay. No, here's yeah. here's the contention I want to make. If you're if you're born into if you're in a conservative family, yeah, then you're raised basically by tradition. You're taught to value tradition, mm-hmm. and you're taught to basically do what you're supposed to do as our society defines it. That's pretty. That's a that's a sort of straightforward uh, code. Um, yeah, but like but, lots well, of conservative people rebel against that. Yeah, right? no, no. Well, yeah. just, hear, just hear me out. My point. My point is that if you grow up conser- in a current in like a, a deeply conservative family, oh, and you also have you you're more likely to have religion, right, as a, as a component of that. Yeah. Um, and so whatever you want to say about conservatism and religion, um, they give you really convenient, uh, all, like moral and ethical and kind of mm-hmm. lifestyle rules of thumb, um, where you can very easily and confidently glide into a certain lifestyle and see it as the good one, the right one, the true one, yeah. and be valued by lots of people around you uh, because of your shared sort of investment in that code. Um, that's, that, so that covers lots of people. Like, uh, conserv- that, you can get that through conservatism, you can get that through religion. Um, and that, Or if you don't have those things, another pathway is uh, money, right? Like if you're born into just a well-off family, then you're, you have a similar kind of ethical or normative code, which is basically kind of just following the habits that your parents uh, had and mm-hmm. and kind of assuming uh, the 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 mores and the the habits and the norms of your successful parents and that that will give you an equally sort of comfortable validated and materially rewarded uh, way of living. Yeah. But if you don't if you grow up in a way that doesn't have any of those things. Yeah. I just literally don't know how you are ever supposed to figure out how to do things. And I feel like that's basically kind of where I'm at. Like, I didn't have the benefit of serious religion. Uh, I didn't have the benefit of serious uh, conservative kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And But I also didn't have, well, obviously, we don't have sort of, you know, robust working class kind of, uh, you know, uh, class conscious kind of uh, mm-hmm. ways of doing that. That sort of doesn't exist anymore. Um, 
and I didn't have money growing up. And in some complicated ways I did, which we could talk about some other time. But, uh, but for the most part, I, I kind of lived the experience of like a poor kid, uh, at least psychologically for, for my youth. And so now that I like, uh, I'm like very lucky to have a, a job that, that pays well and is secure. Um, and, and that is also importantly kind of gives me at least a little bit of kind of, I guess what you call social status or just is respected basically. Um, now that I have that, I don't, the most basic fundamental questions about how to live, like who should I hang out with? How should I act towards them? Mm -hmm. Uh, how should I organize my day? How should I value my time with my partner versus my time doing my intellectual work? I mean, these, Mm -hmm. these are not even interesting questions, but these, these sort of, uh, vast, this vast number of basic questions about how to live. I feel like I have no, I never got any instruction on any of them and I don't know how to do any of them. And I don't have any, I don't even have coordinates that I can refer to at, that I see as desirable or legitimate, um, for how to, for how to, how to model myself. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, yeah, that, I think that's very new and weird and uh, sort of historically unique. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying like, woe is me. People yeah. should feel, people should feel bad for me, but it, no, I'm not saying that at all, but yeah, it, I, it, it is just a sort of culturally and politically perverse and kind of crazy, uh, uh, pathway that human beings can actually come up through uh, in our contemporary culture. What the fuck's up with that? I mean, I think to even feel like those are a set of questions you should ask yourself, that's like new. Yeah, again, I'm sick. I mean, I think this is a form of sickness. Like, in some ways you can see that, I mean, I'm smart, right? And I'm, yeah. like, I'm reflective. But there, it, there does come a point where being kind of reflective and, and uh, you know, intellectually sophisticated does actually really become a form of sickness. I think where, you, uh, where you're sort of seeing things as questions which it would be much healthier to not see as questions. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, maybe it's not that I do. I mean, I think maybe, well, okay, there's two ways to answer this, right? So part of me thinks that, like, this this self-help, for lack of a better term, it's like you're basically grappling with the self-help dilemma, right? So self-help books, that self-help genre. Oh, yeah, it's massive. Massive, right? And it testifies to exactly what I'm talking about. And so there's, there's an obvious massive demand for that. In some ways, I think it's become a hyper accelerator. Like the idea that you can Google, like you said, any problem I have, I can Google it, right? And then, like, find, like, the 20 best answers that Google can come up with. That's, like, that's very new. That's, like, like <laughs> less than 10 years. Yeah. Like, like I'm saying, like, when I was in my 20s, it wasn't a way you could solve problems. It's really only the last decade, I think. There's been enough crap dumped on the Internet where, like, mm-hmm. the experts in every single kind of thing have been able to put their ideas out there for free, right? That, that's new. That level of accessibility to it. But another way, it's like an old anxiety, right? Like, The Prince, if it's anything, it's a self-help book. Right? Right, it's nice, like, nice. <laughs> or like Augustine's Confessions, right? It's like, there's a lot of old-timey books that also, or like The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, right? They're very much like um, self-help right, books, yeah, right? Totally. So there is, there is a deep anxiety. I mean, one way of thinking of it is that religion's been one way that humans have kind of enshrined one code for dealing with that, right? And perhaps self-help's kind of a secularized version or psychotherapy and psychology are kind of 20th century secular ways of grappling with that. Philosophy ultimately is, right? Like, the, 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 right. the big questions you're asking behind that, like... I mean, here, here's the thing, okay. I think the reason the kids question causes anxiety when people ask that. I think most people don't. They just kind of do it. But I think that like for people who it actually becomes a question, do you want to have kids? 
there's a deeper question behind that about what's the point of my life, right? And so having kids is kind of has a very, has a kind of offers one kind of answer to that question, right? The kind of, the, kind of the answers that, you know, you're in some kind of chain of transmission from your parents, grandparents, mm-hmm. you, your children, perhaps on to future generations, right? If you don't have kids, then you're basically the butt at the end of the branch that perhaps we this way it dies and it serves no purpose, right? So opting not to have children kind of throws some very... Can kind, of, can kind of flip back on you about what's the point of your life, right? And there's different ways to answer that. Right, very well put. So I think that might be where the anxiety comes from. But I don't think that there's a... Like, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, yeah, no, I, and I think, to me, the, the point of my life is, you know, I, I want to have a good life, right? I want to have a true life. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, truth probably, and truth and justice. Like I want to live towards. Well, not actually. I'm. I don't like justice. I don't. I don't really think in terms of justice, but I think in terms of uh, freedom and equality more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I want to live for a free and equal uh, coexistence with people. Yeah. Uh, and so the question then becomes: Does having children uh, match that and sort of follow from that, or does it? Uh, or are there perhaps other ways of living in which I can be more, I can live more towards those goals than having children. But this is exactly the point. It's very hard. There there are very few avenues where someone gets a serious sustained uh, kind of guidance on those questions. I mean, even if you study philosophy in, in university or whatever, I mean, it's so compressed and it's so, especially today, it's so sort of economically um, kind of, uh, instrumentally challenged, right? People are mm-hmm. so kind of uh, interested in, in what they're going to do after university that it almost prohibits real deep thinking. Uh, and so even in the best of cases where you're studying philosophy, you it's really increasingly rare for young people to access philosophy as that kind of serious guide. Um, and so I think that what, what can happen for people like me is uh, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm as like well read on that, on philosophy and, and that kind of stuff as, as certainly the, the average person. And, um, but despite that, I can find myself, and I think there are a lot of people like me who can find ourselves in a state of life where still we feel like we have no guidance, and that is crazy. Um, even though I read a lot of philosophy, I mean, I read a lot of philosophy, and, and, and in some sense, I'm trying to live what you're saying, which is that philosophy is ultimately the only guide for mm-hmm. these t- sorts of larger decisions, if, you, if you're choosing like a kind of reflective, or if you've been kind of, uh, if you found yourself on a, on a reflective path. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree with you, but the political and cultural problem is that uh, just the basic everyday breakdown of our resources and opportunities is such that uh, you can't, you can't get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't make that for yourself, um, even in the, in the most privileged of cases sometimes. And I just think that's crazy to think that there are a lot of people or at least a non-trivial amount of people kind of like me who uh, have basically, n- who, who see no real sort of guidance that they believe in or can access. Maybe I'm just being somber. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's more, they probably have more guidance to access than anyone at any point in human history. 
Oh, in the sense of, yeah, books and Google. Well, it's books and Google. I mean, like, like you could choose any... I mean, it, yeah, but it needs to like, be, like, socially grounded, doesn't it? It needs, it needs to be, like, embodied, right? It needs to be, like, to feel... Like, yeah, we have access to information and knowledge. But, but, you could, but for things to actually shape your life, it does need to be sort of uh, embodied in in the people around you. Or else it doesn't get its bite. And I think that's that's the, that's something that's real and that I'm kind of struggling with. Yeah, but I mean, like, you could go join any spiritual tradition. Like, that's, like, very, very new, right? Like, you go back 100 years, you're probably locked into whatever the spiritual tradition is where you were born on Earth, right? Now it's, you know, you could go to any country and probably access any of the major religions relatively easily, right? Uh, if you're looking for a spiritual tradition, like, the access to, like, any of these kind of philosophical classics right. is there. Like the percentage of, of the population that has access to uh, universities is like massive compared to a century ago. So like that, that's all, like all the points of entry are there. I think it's more for the first time ever, it is a choice and the choices are diverse and overwhelming. Yeah. That's probably where the anxiety comes from. Not, not the lack of choice. It's like the surplus sure. of them. No, I, don't, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and, it's not a lack of choice. And the pluralization of it also just makes it, makes people, I think, I think the, here's where you get the conservative backlash, like, and not just like Christian conservative or Western conservative. I think here's where you just get like, for lack of a better term, the fundamentalist reaction coming from, from any tradition is that the awareness of all these choices makes any one tradition seem less secure in itself, right? Uh, right. But, okay, but here's, here's, here's the thing, though. What's fucked up about the culture of choice is that it sort of begs the question. Because the, the, the fundamental puzzle is precisely what should I choose? Yeah. So I don't know. That's, do you see what I mean? So cult-like tradition, uh, with a capital T, is, for most of history, the solution to this sort of logical regress, right? It, yeah. It, tradition tells you what... what the, it gives you sort of the background criteria, right, that are just sort of prefigured into your existence, uh, with certain priorities, right? But when you don't have that prefigured into your existence, then you're right that there are all these choices, and we've never had such a rich, such you know a rich amount of choices. But nothing can, but none of those choices can give you guidance on which way you want to make your choices, and that you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, of course I know I have access to all these different spiritual traditions and all these different things, um, but. I don't know which one to choose. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for guidance for. Well, uh, I think, I think okay, I'll, I'll say this. I'll make an observation, and then I think we should take a little break. Oh, yeah, yeah, good idea. <laughs> we've been going, how long have we been going? We can do that anytime. Um, like two hours or something. I don't know. When did we start? I don't know. It's probably about two hours now. Yeah. yeah. I, so I'll just say this. Like, Oh, yeah, one hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. So I would say that I think you're making a category error here where you think it's a problem of knowledge. Right? Like, as if more information, some new blog post, some new hack or technique <laughs> will provide you with the answer. Mm. Whereas it's not a problem of knowledge, it's a problem of. Um, it's a problem of how you act in the world, for lack of a better way. Mm. Right? But isn't it that like, I'm sort of culturally and politically unmoored? Uh, I. Maybe. I mean, that's certainly part of it, but I think there's, like, there's lots of traditions that respond to this, right? Like, I think, like, Emerson... Like, to me, I'm like, I, if I were to, like, prescribe a text for you to read, it's Emerson's self-reliance, right? Mm. Like, very mm. much. And so, like, part of what's going on in that text is that you have to learn to trust 
what's in you as I like really learn to listen to yourself and trust your own instincts and then express that. It's kind of this expressivist totally. perfectionist tradition. Yeah. Right. And so that then pushes you to look inward as opposed to look outward for more information. It's more a process of you you may feel unmoored, but the proper way to moor yourself is to kind of look back into yourself and kind of look for whatever your inner truth, your bliss, whatever, you That's know, good point. Not, not to sound too much like a no, 60s no. countercultural hippie, but like there's something, totally. there's something to that. Yeah. And that then shifts it away from this kind of thought that the answers to my questions could be found through the Google search bar to like the answers have to be found from within. That's a very good point. Totally. I think one problem with that, I, I mean, I think you're right. That's brilliant advice. Um, but the issue with that is that it leads to uh, sort of, it can lead to sometimes dramatic and really destabilizing unhealthy, painful forms of, uh, yeah, just again, sort of dissonance. I'm not necessarily using that in a kind of technical psychological way, but um, especially, you know, because, you know, Emerson didn't have things like the internet, right? So one's ability, one's capacity mm-hmm. to go into oneself and sort of seek one's, you know, emotional, intellectual, spiritual sustenance uh, from one's sort of inner being, uh, that lifestyle simply, just in an objective way, was uh, easier to access uh, in the time that that was writing. And when you try to live that way in today's world, you really do face pretty extraordinary kind of social, socio-technical um, kind of discouragements. Mm-hmm. Um, sp- yeah, and... And I think that's one reason why, because I do take some, I do take some sort of guidance from that tradition in some sense, maybe not explicitly Emerson, but, um, again, the the issue is that because things are changing so rapidly, especially technologically in Mm -hmm. sort of our era, um, all of these sort of new roadblocks to sort of coherent, healthy existence are, are in place in this like really confusing way that in some sense, the history of philosophy just hasn't been able to uh, Mm -hmm. get to yet. Mm-hmm. Um, just because that, that moves very slow. So the response time in sort of philosophical, um, solutions to life issues, uh, is just a slow response time. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of where I think a lot of people, especially in my generation are today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not speaking for anyone other than myself, but I suspect I'm not the only one. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, maybe the, maybe the ultimate answer is sort of the, I guess not very satisfying one, but, uh, perhaps the right one, which is that you have to kind of just be like really radically eclectic and sort of draw insights from yeah, the diversity of the history of ideas uh, and try to just fucking piece them together in some sort of wacky way mm-hmm. that can allow you to deal with all of these sort of new, different, conflicting dimensions, maybe? Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, maybe. I'd say the opposite. I'd say <laughs> yeah. don't draw from the outside, draw from the in. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, but, but, but you're drawing from Emerson, right? So, I mean, obviously, in some sense, that's not uh, yeah. always... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not you know, yeah. being a stickler. I'm just saying... I don't know. I mean, there's... There, I, I don't know if I agree with that because I think when Emerson says draw from within mm-hmm. what he's actually saying, and, and sometimes Emerson and Thoreau are, are explicit about this, but sometimes uh, perhaps we don't realize it enough. What they, what they actually mean is drawing from like a harmonious existence with nature. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like drawing it from, you know, it's not like they are sort of sui generis, the, the source of their contentment and satisfaction and health and well being. Mm-hmm. It's, they are drawing it from the things around them. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's important, especially when the things around us today are massively different than they were then. Uh, so, I mean, if you look at someone like Deleuze, right, it says almost the opposite mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, being is this sort of constantly, this like radic- radically constant uh, 
uh, way of drawing in things from the outside mm-hmm. and 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 channeling them into all kinds of diverse creations, right? Mm-hmm. Creativity. The creativity is fundamentally a process of of being affected by mm-hmm. uh, things as much as you are affecting other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that goes anywhere useful or interesting, but to me, it is a matter of you do have to actually get really tricky and reflective about what kinds of inputs you're exposing yourself to. Mm-hmm. And I do, th- I do kind of think that if you take that seriously enough, you can kind of re you can sort of reverse engineer, um, all the d- different effects that society has on you mm-hmm. and get them sorted in a way that, uh, actually produces your own, uh, like radical and socially politically kind of effective and dangerous and satisfying and true and honest kind of ways of being. Uh, but again, that kind of makes me a crazy person because that's, uh, I mean, that's not, if I ever get any answers about how to live that path, it won't be, you know, it's going to come slow. And, and meanwhile, I'm going to be just sort of like a crazy person who has no coordinates. Yeah. You think that's okay though? I think most people are. <laughs> Maybe that's all it is. Okay. We can take a break. You want to yeah. take a break? Right? Yeah. Why? That's how I want it. Demands. So you want this to be split with the previous one? Yeah, I think it should be a new episode. Okay, it's good. I support it. I think two Are hours. Are we on is, yet? Or two no? hour, yeah, two oh, hours. Okay, good. I think yeah. two hours is a perfect. This uh, is definitely quantity. a new episode. To be clear, there's been like what two and a half hours since the last episode. Yeah, it was great. The world's changed a lot. It was great. I love fucking love this. You just like chit chatting away. I have to fucking say, to be perfectly honest. I think deciding to do a podcast was the best decision I've made in a long time. What's that show of the movie? What was it? Was it Ed? There's this movie in the 90s that came out where the premise was the guy became a reality TV show. It was like pre-reality TV. There's been a lot of that in culture, right? Like Truman Show. Uh, Truman Show, yeah. yeah. And this came out before and it wasn't as popular and not as good. And I think it had Woody Harrelson. I can't remember. Anyway. But the, the premise was, the difference between The Truman Show and this is The Truman Show, he doesn't know that he's a reality TV guy, and this one he actually does know, and it's kind of like, how does that affect his life? Mm. I think. Mm. I, I saw the movie like 20 years ago. Mm. That sounds cool. Yeah. Um, I think I want to do stand-up comedy. I know. I'm going to try it. I'm going to, I think I'm going to do it. All right, that's good. I, I, we should do, we should interview my friend Wampus. Yeah. Cause he actually is a stand-up comic. Is he funny? Yeah, no, he's legitimately funny. Cool. Uh, I want to try it because I don't think I'm funny. Like I, I don't, I mean, I'm not fun. I don't have any, you know, uh, penchant for comedy or humor necessarily. I just like the idea of, of, of having sort of like a, a goal or like a yeah. yeah just some kind of like thing to do like that that I don't feel I'm good at or have any reason yeah. to be doing but to see it as purely a kind of like intellectual puzzle to solve like can I learn how to be funny yeah and then go do it and be funny in public like just learning how to do that sounds fucking cool yeah it's a good thing to do I think like so like being a lecturer is like very different from being a stand-up comic but one thing I've learned about stand-up comedy from being a lecturer is 
it's kind of obvious how easily your jokes can bomb. Because <laughs> I've had many jokes bomb in front of a class over my 15 years of lecturing. Yeah. I mean, I've also, like, hit jokes or just said something funny and the whole class has burst out laughing. That's kind of nice. But, uh, yeah, you can bomb pretty easily. And if it's a lecture hall and it's, like, disaffected 18-year-olds, it's, like, no big deal. Just move on to your next point. Uh, but I've gone and mm. seen, like, a low-level stand-up comedy. Like, there's mm. this... Uh, to be like an open mic night at this Italian restaurant in Norman, <laughs> Oklahoma. And it was like, it was like the lowest of the low level comedy. And okay. First of all, you'd probably be better than most of them. Cool. Cause a lot of them were just like, a lot of it was like guys, frat boys telling, trying to do cringe humor and like just uh, coming across as like rapists. Oh God. Like really just making really sexist, horrible, creepy rape like jokes. Oh, so it was kind God, of shit. That it, it was so like, horrible. Oh, it was terrible. I could definitely uh, do stand-up comedy. Yeah, or or even worse, right? Well, maybe not even worse. I mean, who cares? But just like just like really bad jokes. This and maybe one or two had kind of like a shtick. And then the other thing that was really bad is a lot of them would just like steal jokes explicitly from comics. And if you like mm. know any comedy, mm. you know the joke. <laughs> and mm. you're like, oh, I already saw, I know Hannibal Burris or something do that, right? I mean, like, right. so I mean, it's kind of pretty. So yeah, you know, but. Go for it, I say. Go become a stand-up comic. I think I could do it. I think I would just uh, talk about my feelings. Yeah. But it would be... I mean... And it would be so... I don't know. I think I maybe I could do a thing where, like... It's so not comedy. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just sincere about it, then it will somehow become amusing. And I'll just, like, find a... I'll find, like, a... I'll find a groove yeah. where it's amusing, and then I'll just work that groove. That's um, good. Yeah, you, you have a strong desire for performance. I do. I really, really do. I actually honestly do. I actually yeah. already found um, acting classes in yeah. Southampton, yeah. and I'm really, really. I've been thinking about yeah. it for a long time. I actually really want to. Um, and it's funny because I don't have. I'm not. I don't have any of these skills. Like, I, yeah. it's not like there's something about my personality that makes me like. I have nothing to say that I would. I have no reason to think I would be a good comic. I have no reason to think I would be a good actor. Yeah. Um, but I am just very attracted to learning how to do those things. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in some sense, like. I think what I really dream of is doing, di- learning how to do different things um, and making them kind of converge on just a better way of living and being, right? So, like, lecturing, podcasting, learning how to do stand-up comedy, learning how to be an actor. Yeah. I don't necessarily, I don't want to be a, I don't actually care about any of those things in particular that much, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in working on all of them just in the interest of making my everyday existence and yeah. ability to, like, be around people maximally interesting and entertaining and uh fun yeah and 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 powerful kind of like uh inspiring and satisfying for myself and for others uh yeah do you think that could happen (laughs) okay guys ask you why you keep asking me if i think stuff could happen (laughs) because because that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> it's like the Jeff Furby validation podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's not about validation. No, no, it's not about validation. It's about um, ch- bouncing my ideas off of other people to see if they think those ideas are good and yes, they can work or are those ideas stupid and no, they can't work. Uh, I mean, all right. Here's my, my, my long answer to that. Cause it's a podcast, so I should just ramble, right? <laughs> so the long answer is this, is that I think all of the activities you listed are all things you could do. Um, 
And <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I want to be 100% honest about this. Yeah. All right. Of course. I actually don't believe in talent at all. I really don't. I think that, like, uh, it's all about the time and the effort you sink into something, mm. right? And so I think that when we think about people who are talented, it may be that perhaps they're a bit more dexterous when they try something new at the beginning, perhaps because there's, like, a translation of skills from something else. But, I mean, it really is just someone just walked in on something and then just gone 100% bonkers on that thing. Right. And I, I, I honestly think that you can probably only get really good at, like, like really, really good at, like, one or two things mm. in your lifetime. Right. Right? Like, to get, like, like, mastery, like, judo, triple black belt, whatever. Right. Right? But one of the things I've noticed is that there's a certain kind of person who tends to get really good at one thing and then they go get really good at something else. And they, they have that personality where they just like lock in on that and they're mm. quite happy. They, and they, they gotta be a couple of things. And one, they've actually got to be not afraid of making mistakes and just making an ass out of themselves. And then they also just have that crazy work ethic mm. and they just go do it. Mm. And like, yeah. So there's, you know, friends, people I know who've just done that in two or three areas and they're just really good at something. It's often kind of weird and niche, but like, you're just like, oh, I got really good at it, right? I think so. If you wanted to become a stand-up comic and you decided to go for it, you could definitely do it. You'd have to put the work. Like the, it depends on what your ambition for success is, right? right. It's just doing an open mic night and telling a few jokes. Well, that'd so. That'd be easy. Okay. I think, like, if your ambition's like you want to have a special on HBO, you'd have <laughs> to. Yeah, you could totally do that, too, I think. But you'd basically have to say, okay. I'm only going to do stand-up comedy for, like, the next 10 years. Right. No, I totally see what you're saying, and I think you're right about that. To be really good at anything, you have to give uh, a lot to it for a long period of time, and then and then you can uh, with a certain attitude and with other, you know, obviously luck and privilege and that kind of shit. But, um, so your point is well taken. I think you're right. But what I'm saying is what if you made your goal, the thing that you're trying to get good at, sort of life itself? I mean, in some sense, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, what I want to focus all of my attention and energy on mm-hmm. is figuring out how to live in the most explosively uh, effective, dynamic, inspiring, and ultimately revolutionary way. I mean, this is ultimately, I mean, this might sound crazy or corny, but sort of behind what I'm saying is actually my radical political perspective and my, my kind of mm-hmm. desire and drive for the revolutionary transformation of what I think is a fucked up society. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like... I mean, a lot of my activist friends would malign what I'm saying right now as hopelessly kind of bourgeois, individualistic, whatever, yeah. self-obsessed. It's and very inter- bourgeois. Yeah, well, okay, hold on, hold on. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, no, but, yeah, but, all right, all right, hear me, hear me out, though. Hear yes. me out. Um, but if you believe that sort of a key po- sort of problem of, of politics is alienation, right? That's mm-hmm. a sort of a, a tried-and-true kind of uh, position right, in the history of philosophy, which I, which I tend, tend to agree. If you buy that... Perhaps if one of our key problems today is, is sort of massive, deep alienation, uh, yeah. then it does stand to reason, actually, that uh, working on the basic arts of living, things uh-huh. like things like just being able to speak and th- being able to think and speak really honestly, really clearly, and really mm-hmm. kind of effectively and, and fearlessly, right? Yeah. Um, that that does actually. It sounds on the first glance that it that it or it looks like at first glance like a kind of bourgeois interior kind of self obsession, uh, but if you actually think about it in terms of the art of living and the ability to actually like create 
dangerous and interesting and provocative and powerful connections and relationships, um, then actually it's not, it's not actually individualistic or interior. It's a matter of actually trying to turn oneself from an alienated, atomized, kind of quote-unquote normal person to a kind of abnormally um, explosive uh, living being yeah. in a society where like actual honest living being is increasingly prohibited. Um, so yeah, when I, t- when I say I want to get into comedy and I want to get into acting and I want to try all, I want to try to learn all these different things. It, no, it's not at all because I, I don't, I don't want to have a HBO special on any of this stuff. I mean, I don't even, if, if this podcast never has more than 10 listeners, uh, that's, that's fine with me. Uh, my point is to use all of these things as basically ways, uh, to improve my ability to actually live and, uh, yeah, I mean, does that make any sense? I think that if you have that goal, then it, you're suddenly talking about a very different type of project. And I don't think many people pursue that project um, where you're basically just trying to uh, make yourself uh, able to do basic human functions that most people aren't able to do. Does that make any sense? No. Really? I, I think that's more alienating, isn't it? Are you kidding? Like, if I, was, if I knew how to walk into any room mm-hmm. and be charming as fuck and funny as fuck, and make every person feel, uh, like, disalienated. Yeah. To have that skill, that's, like, a totally dangerous, radical, um, skill. Uh, that's, that's a radical way of I being. It's radical at all. I think it's the opposite. I think that's, like, that's what Trump's doing. No way. No, the problem yeah. there... No, no, the problem... No, 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 no. Dude, the problem is, in our society, people with any kind of skill that has to do anything... That has any kind of charming effect... Yeah. They almost always are in the business of converting that into profit. Exactly. But okay, okay. So hear me out. So if you learn those skills, literally for no other purpose than building actual sincere human connection mm-hmm. and disalienation and honesty and truth and, and all these kinds of things that are increasingly kind of drowned out and prohibited in our society and yeah. the kinds of interactions that we are allowed to have. If if you literally are just doing that and you're not converting that to profit, you're not actually doing that in an exploitative way. That is massively radical and liberating, and I think I think quite uh, dangerous from a kind of uh, revolutionary perspective. Uh, I disagree. I think that you're being a cult leader. Really? Yeah, it's like even if I'm not Jonestown like, shit, man. Wait, wait. <laughs> like, that's all. Even if I'm not, even if, okay. So you're telling me that someone who's just interested in living well and living powerfully and dynamically and healthily and wants to do that so much that um, they are actually just a healthy, good person and can and can exert healthy, good. Uh, ways of being and living towards the people around them. You think just doing that um, is by definition sort of like creepy or fascist yeah. or manipulative? Why? Yeah. Uh, even if you're not converting it into a cult, even if you're not converting it into a personality sort of Because um, you're treating everyone else like as, as means to your end. No, what I'm saying is learning the art of not doing that. That is exactly what I'm getting at. I don't know. It sounds, I mean, everything you're saying is very... Um, it's very I, I, I. And then they, mm. they, they, mm. right? And so, all right, fine. I mean, yeah, you could certainly do it for money. That's fine. You're not doing that. But like when I say it's like a cult, it's like you know most most people who who lead some kind of movement like that, mm-hmm. right? It's very charismatic. Yes, right. Yeah, so I you're basically making yeah. a strong point for charisma. And then I think a lot of them will say, oh, they actually are trying to save people in some way, right? Mm. And so, so perhaps theirs is like salvation of souls, but I mean, in some sense, you're also trying to save souls, right? And I'm like, to me, I think that you, the, mm. the, what check do you have on this process that stops you from 
not even being aware of how your ego becomes so strong that it then distorts your ends. Mm. Right? Yeah. Like the, I, I see no grounding practice mm. there that stops that from happening. The only grounding practice there is uh, radical collective autonomous organization. Right? So, like, all of the things I'm talking about, the, the ways that I want to learn how to live better. Yeah. If that, if that does drive anywhere, if, if it does sort of have effects in sort of uh, people, yeah. it would be towards uh, learning totally autonomous, equalitarian ways of building that uh, co-presence yeah. together and building that circle larger and larger for the purpose of actually building organizations and, and just relationships that yeah. become resistant and oppositional to, to the status quo. I mean, that is, that is sort of the key kind of background point of everything I'm saying. And I noticed an interesting sort of uh, uh, contradiction, sort of in, in your in your critique, because yeah. on the one hand, you're kind of cri- you can criticize it as sound as what I'm saying. It sounds sort of individualistic and very me, 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 um, and and I totally get that. Um, but then you can also say when I when I try to say that it's not that, or I try to or I try to point to something larger than that or more than that, then it kind of sounds like, or you could critique it as being manipulative of others or you just want other people to, you just want to have a certain effects on others and yeah. it's all about manipulating others so it's odd that our society kind of puts us in this like double bind where it's like uh if we try to do anything simply because we want to be healthier and we want to be we want to learn how to think and speak more clearly and beautifully yeah. and effectively if you want to do that just because it's inherently good and because you think it's healthy and mm-hmm. that's a better way to live well then that's bourgeois and individualistic and you shouldn't worry too much about that that's just uh-huh. being obsessed with yourself yeah. but then if you try to say that you want to do that because you want to be better able to build dynamic and and desirable and and uh, liberating relationships and connections and that kind of stuff and have mm-hmm. effects on people then it sounds like you're trying to manipulate people and you're trying to use people for some yeah. larger sort of larger goal so basically i think both of those critiques are totally fair because both of those things happen in our society because yeah. we have a fucked up like perverse society um but what I'm trying to say is that there there does exist a way of being, I think, which is truly neither of those neither neither of those bad perversions mm-hmm. of, of that. Um, but that actually is just I, I really do think that um, taking the art of living seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all these things like being able to being able to walk into a room and, and speak clearly, but also make people laugh and make people feel comfortable and yeah. being able to take on different roles in different ways, right? That would be comedy and acting and, and things like podcasting, just being able to have interesting, edifying, and perhaps socially useful conversations with people. Yeah. All of these things, like, uh, having this, I have this, I do have this sincere interest in learning how to do all those things and making them all converge in what I can really not describe in any other way than basically learning how to live well and, and being, being a healthy person in a society where that's kind of like prohibited, like mm-hmm. an, a, like in a dynamic, effective, uh, fearless kind of person in a society where that's largely prohibited, um, in most times and places. I really do think there is a way of doing that that is neither bourgeois and individualistic and neither, uh, like manipulative of others. And I think that actually is, uh, a, an important pathway for thinking about radical politics just because we're all fucking alienated. Like most people are alienated as fuck. I mean, myself included. And I think if we're, if we're going to actually break out of that and build organizations to fundamentally transform society, it, that does actually require a certain amount of self care. I mean, that's like, that's like fucking Audre Lorde, right? Like the tradition of self care in radical politics is, is increasingly well recognized and I think that's because there is a kind of inherent individualistic moment in kind of collective liberation, but mm-hmm. we're so afraid of being individualistic and bourgeois and that's so sort of like discouraged and shamed that we often don't even give ourselves uh, the, the true self-care and self kind of 
self-exploration and self-flourishing mm-hmm. uh, attentions that we not only do we deserve, but are actually prerequisites for collective uh, liberation. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> why am I like that? <laughs> I love it. Like, why, why do you love that? I feel like... Am I making you feel alienated? No, I don't feel alienated at all. I don't feel... Uh... <laughs> do you think I'm full of shit? <laughs> I think that... I don't even know how to answer the question. I mean, I, I think that you may be starting off with the best of intentions, and I'm not sure if you could ever get to the point where you could walk around and manipulate people. But no, I'm it's not like, manipulating. It's not. I, I, want to be, I mean, to me, I mean, it is, right? It's just... Uh, Dude, the normal way of being in our society is manipulative. Like, normal, standard, status quo, ways of modest, kind of respectful chit-chat, like, that is manipulative at its core, because we're, we're precisely just inhabiting the roles that we are supposed to inhabit for our own sort of personal, uh, like, career advancement and, yeah. so, and social kind of respect. Yeah, I reject both, but I reject both those. Th- so to me, I'm like, you're like, oh, on the one hand, I don't even understand the dichotomy you set up, but I'm sure it's a false one. <laughs> <laughs> why? Uh, I mean, why? So I don't, like, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, just go and do whatever society expects of you. I mean, I mean that's conformity, right? But I do have this suspicion of the opposite, where it's, I'm going to become so great, and this is going to then lead to some radical transformation. Mm. And both those two things are left very empty, Mm. and then can be filled in by all kinds of stuff, Mm. right? Whereas, maybe just letting go of the need... Like, to me, I'd say this. Like, rather than seeing becoming a stand-up comic as then being transmitted to a way you can then come in and kind of own the room, which can then be turned into radical liberation, just, like, go become a stand-up comic. No, because becoming a stand-up comic is precisely being re-territorialized by the status quo. Like, that's exactly what our society does, right? It takes sincere kind of human uh, uh, ways of being that are healthy and attractive and, and powerful simply because they're healthy in a society where there's a lot of ill health uh, imposed on us. And these tracks basically channel it into pre-established codes that precisely derive it of its danger and its, and its, and its power to actually create relationships. So, so no, I don't want to become stand-up comic. I don't want to be like, uh, I, don't, I don't want an HBO special for acting or anything. Like, I don't yeah. want any of those things because those, preci- those would precisely be measures of failure. For what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think that you're then taking the next step. And I'm saying don't do that, right? Don't do it for anything other than the act of doing it itself. Yeah, I guess maybe in some sense I would say that is what I'm doing. Um, but then you say, oh, for, it's for liberation, right? Like, to me, okay, this is very common, is that people get into some expressive activity, and they do it because the fantasy of whatever the payoff is, right? Mm-hmm. And no matter what that activity is, there's some way to monetize it, right? Mm-hmm. This is like the, that's just like the nature of modern capitalism, right? No matter what you do, you can, you can monetize right. it somehow, right? And so it's at that moment where whatever that activity is turns into some kind of commercial activity, mm-hmm. that's where it gets corrupted or goes haywire. I totally agree. Right? Yeah. And so, like, for me, I'm like, just be a stand-up comic for, like, no reason other than being a stand-up comic, right? Yeah. Like, to me, the people I respect are, like, people who just, 
walk away or just don't give too fuck, right? Like, like yeah. Dave Chappelle, kind of classic examples, got like the best sketch show in the early 2000s, right? And mm. he just walks away and it's people have always kind of, you know, why do you do that? He's kind of always been cagey, quite possibly has some kind of mental breakdown. Mm. But there's also a way in which I think he was worried that he had a lot of freedom the first year in the show to do whatever he wanted because it was a nothing show and it became a success and he was afraid that that success was then corrupting whatever he's trying to do. And so I said, I'll just let that go. Totally. I totally agree right? with that. And even let go, you know, he'll occasionally go do a stand-up comic set. But there's a, a compelling case to be made that he's he, he is the best stand-up comic alive and he's not practicing that art anymore because he's afraid, or at least in a public forum, kind of too much an extent because he's afraid of how it'll get distorted and that's right? noble as fuck I think like that yeah. is exactly the right thing to yeah. do when you feel like that's the position that you're in yeah so to me I'm like eh. yeah so I'm just like that to me is good I, I just think that he got somewhere where he stared down an abyss and realized that the whatever was happening was taking it away from just the purity of doing what he wanted to do mm-hmm. right Trying to think of other examples. Of no, but that's but that's exactly right? that's exactly why I'm so interested in uh, kind of playing with all of these different disciplines of kind of you know the the talents of, of human being in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, precisely with no even I don't even have, I don't have I mean it's not even a hope right it's not even a, something I could dream of that I would ever get good enough at any of these things to even be able to monetize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not at all the goal. It's precisely to traffic in sort of the the lower levels of these skills. Mm-hmm. But gaining them just enough that it actually enhances my being. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's pretty dope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and I think the reason I, the only reason I gave this kind of like uh, larger kind of political gloss on it is simply because, you know, I, I, I roll in like radical circles and stuff like that. And in those circles, it's uh, anything too focused on sort of the art of existence uh, is seen as just kind of hopelessly bourgeois and individualistic. Uh, and it, and I really, really don't think that it is. So it's not that I'm, I'm not saying I want to do these things because I think it's revolutionary and I think it's going to change the world. No, not at all. It, it's more that I think human beings have the right to, to want to improve the quality of their being. Um, and that doing that is actually more consistent with revolutionary transformation than sort of, uh, agreeing to subsist in these like crappy undeveloped unformed human states that most of us exist in mm. by virtue of having jobs and all this sort of oppressive like obligations that people have, um, actually insisting on developing one's faculties is totally defensible from a radical political perspective. Not, not, which is not to say that it is like the key to changing the world or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, no, I might have like a, it's interesting, probably from being in activist circles and stuff like that, I have this kind of, uh, probably very neurotic kind of superego, uh, issue where I need to, I feel like I need to constantly defend anything that I want to do for myself, uh, simply because I'm attracted to doing it or it sounds interesting or I think it, it could make me like a better person or something like that. Anything I want to do for those reasons, I automatically begin to feel guilty about or kind of like, uh self-loathing or, or something about. And I feel like I need to, uh, justify to myself and to others that no, actually I think this does fit in with, uh, a certain pathway of revolutionary becoming in both individual and then, and then collective becoming. 
But it's very ambitious. Is it? Yeah. I feel like it's... In some sense, it's ambitious, but in some sense, I, all I'm really trying to do is figure out how to live. Uh, it's like I was saying before. Like, I, I really feel like I don't... So, so take, comp, take acting classes or something. Like, yeah. I honestly want to take acting classes because when I go into um, a difficult uh, social situation that perhaps I've never been in before, um, I want to be able to effectively inhabit my position in that situation mm-hmm. in a way that is humane to the people, and, and in a way that is honest and true and, and expressive and, and interesting and creative because I, I want to be those things that feels satisfying. That's, that's human flourishing basically in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also a matter of, it's a, it's a courtesy to the people I want to interact with, right? Like I want to learn how to treat people, how to behave and how to perform in a social situation that actually gives people something uh, valuable and, and worthwhile. Uh, and I currently don't have that. Like I currently don't know how to act or behave in all different kinds of situations. Why do you think acting lessons will give you that? Well, because it would give me the skills to uh, make it up as I go. Uh, it would be, it would like, okay, because improv I, improv classes, you mean? Well, no, 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 I don't think so, because, well, because all social performance is, it is performance, right? It, it is actually uh, performing certain roles. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I it's, it's basically what you're saying sounds very weird to me. I'm just like, oh, just, talk to someone unless you know what they have to say. Yo, but that's hard, man. I grew up, like, on the internet and shit. I don't know how to talk to people. Well, you just um, listen, and but, then you respond to what they yeah, say. Yeah, but, like, the thing is, in most social situations, you're not allowed to say what you think. I mean, that's just true, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you're you're allowed to do whatever you want. <laughs> like, there's nothing stopping you from doing anything. But you can't, I mean, you can't have any form of, like, uh, like income like decent income uh-huh. without basically signing up for constant self-repression uh that, would you agree i don't feel repressed no <laughs> no okay well i don't feel like constant self-repression i mean I, I, I know i don't know like uh it depends very much on the social context like obviously i'm thrown into a new social context i'm nervous and uh you know a bit awkward but i think that's just human nature there's nothing wrong with that um, you know, the only thing I've ever learned over the years is just to relax, kind of watch the room, and then just if people talk to me, I just talk back to them, you know, just make pleasantries, listen to them, whatever. There's not, like, a secret mm. to it. I don't even think, I mean, it's not. But you don't sometimes think something, and then you think, I'm not allowed to say that. Uh, do I think that? And sometimes I'm not allowed to say that. Like, in what sense? Um, any sense. I mean, I guess there's stuff I would... It's actually the opposite. I, th- I don't think... I Like, there's, if you sat down and said there's things you're not supposed to say in certain contexts, they'd probably be obvious, right? Like, there's not... Like, if I went in and interacted with students in a classroom the same way I interact with, say, you or friends or whatever, right? That's a mm. very different mode of acting, right? Mm. But I just don't do that because I see my, I understand my role as a lecturer and it's just my job is to like teach them and all that, right? Right. Okay. Um, or like if students come to my office hour and ask me stuff, I'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, I can talk about, you know, I'll talk about whatever, but I have like, pro, you know, if, if it becomes like a very kind of personal crisis which comes up a fair bit just in my, my role at the moment, um, you know, I'm very procedural and how I interact with them, right? I'm like, okay, okay, you know, I offer offer sympathy, do all that kind of stuff, but then 
obviously guide them towards whatever the resources are on campus for pastoral care. Okay. Right? So, like, to me, that those are not, but I don't think about it. Like, to me, I'd be like, it'd be, you know, like an inappropriate way of acting for me to, like, then, oh, you know, I'm having a horrible time. You know, I'm sorry about your depression. Let me tell you about my depression and my horrible <laughs> home life, right? Like that, like that, and I'm certainly aware that sometimes some professors do that. That's like a very bad way of acting, right? So, you know, but you learn that stuff over time. But I'm like, I don't know. I don't, but to me, I'm like acting classes would. Okay. That. No, no, that's cool. I mean, I, it might just be that we're different in the sense that it sounds like you, and this is one of the reasons I like you and admire you, because I think you've kind of made your uh, true self and your pub, your your more public self. Uh huh. You've you've aligned them fairly well, and you uh, so that you don't feel too much alienation or dissonance, and uh-huh. so that's dope. That's right. That's that's great. Uh-huh. Um, for me, I think I'm just way different, and I don't know, and I. I often think a lot about myself, and sometimes it sounds like I'm like just selfish or self-obsessed or something like that. But I, I really swear to God that it's it's not because I think I'm interesting. It's because I suspect that what I am observing in myself is not as rare as we're made to feel. And so I do think that actually introspection can be a hugely useful kind of uh, social uh, a, a way of gaining social knowledge. And so anytime I refer to things about myself, I'm not actually talking about myself. I'm talking about interesting things that I can testify to mm-hmm. that I suspect are more common than we think. Uh, simply because I tend to be more, I tend to like speak a bit more freely, perhaps than some people, and I'm just not that weird or that fucked up that uh, things I'm thinking about or the things I'm kind of struggling with are just me. Like I don't think I'm just crazy. Uh, no, I don't think you are at all. I'd, I'd say that probably most people. I'd say that. Maybe one of the switches that happened for me, like let's say, like, you know, like a common social anxiety situation is like going to a party or going to some social gathering where you don't know anyone, right? And not knowing how to act, not whatever, right? Just pick that as a hypothetical scenario, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the switches that happened for me is when I realized that most other people in that room are in the exact same situation. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. okay, well, everyone's just doing it, whatever, yeah, right? And exactly. so then it's like, oh, whatever, right? And then for whatever reason, that just like that realization for me uh, kind of seemed to calm things down, right? I mean, I can remember like very, like, I think went to APSA, it's like American Political Science Association, so big academic conference. I think for the first time in 2003, I was a grad student, and, you know, there's like these different receptions, and, you know, academia is very hierarchical, right? And I remember being told, oh, you've really got to go to... For some reason, I was told by somebody... Probably took bad advice from, like, a neurotic graduate student a few, few years ahead of me that you really had to go to a conference, network, and that's how you would get a job, <laughs> right? And so I, for some reason, I kind of developed my head that I had to be a very slick operator in the foundations of political thought reception room. And... Uh, network with people and go hang out with like the luminaries of political theory. So like go mm-hmm. like slap Bill Connolly's back or I don't know whoever else is a big shot, whatever. Uh, and then then you'd be cool and then you get a job, right? And so I remember going to this room and just being terrified. And then and like the other thing that was kind of weird is that the professors from my department they were obviously all doing their shop talk with people. I had no time to talk to the grad students, and so it was kind of like this just kind of sat in the corner. And didn't really talk to anyone, and then just laugh, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I remember like feeling very traumatized by it. But then I'm realizing later on that actually, um, yeah, most other people in that situation anyway, 
and I was a grad student and basically irrelevant, so no one was going to talk to me anyway. And then, like, I was at APSA this year, so same conference, 12 years later, and I'm, like, established now. And, like, so some people know who I am on this chit-chat and stuff. And I felt, like, very comfortable in the room, but also kind of now contemptuous of it. And also realizing that a lot of the so-called famous people uh, were probably as nervous and socially awkward mm. as I was then and now. Right? Mm. So I'm just like, that's like a normal thing, right? So, Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think for me, it's like, no, no, you're totally right. And, and there are ways that you can sort of help in a healthy way, learn and mature and just basically learn how to inhabit this sort of generalized alienation that kind of is, is unique to all of us. Um, or, you know, non-unique to any of us because it's common to all of us. Um, but I, I still, I still have this sort of belief that instead of just adapting to it and learning, it's common learning, it affects everyone else also, and just sort of stabilizing and adjusting to it. Which is great. I'm not judging that. To me, that is sort of precisely how kind of the radical truth of human being gets pacified and repressed and distorted and, and kind of like channeled into like our fucked up circuits of, of, of living and being. So my wager, like my feeling is that if instead of adjusting to things, we can learn through creativity to basically restyle. I mean, this is very like Foucauldian and Deleuzian, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm basically saying to take the aesthetics of existence so seriously from a political perspective, from a political theory perspective, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can actually learn how, how, how we function, what our need, what our basic needs and desires and tendencies are and, and how sort of communication functions, how expression and, and interpersonal connection functions mm-hmm. to learn that so well, to learn the skills of, of, of existing, the, aesthetic, the aesthetics of existing so well that uh, instead of adapting to sort of status quo pressures or just like nor- you know, contemporary normalcy. Uh, we can actually just learn to be fundamentally different. Um, I mean, look, like most people and most people with like a radical or even just a kind of at all critical uh, kind of perspective on society agree that we need to, that, that human beings need to change. But no one wants it. I often feel like no one wants to take very seriously in what ways and to what degree we mm-hmm. should really radically recreate how, how, how we exist and how, mm-hmm. and how we actually interact. So I feel like all I'm really saying is that we should take the aesthetics of existence uh, more seriously from a political perspective. But it's almost like there are lots of fucking like academic Foucauldians who will, who will say that or agree with that in like their work. Yeah. But then if you actually sit down with them and you try to say, okay, I'm actually really interested in so reforming my aesthetics of existence that I want to fundamentally change who I am and I want to change the effects I have on people and I want to change the way that I actually exist and function in the world. Mm-hmm. Somehow to actually take that, so to take that as literally as I'm taking it, is seen as kind of like crazy or, or, or lunatic or, or self-obsessed or individualistic or, or in some cases even manipulative. Um, so that's kind of the, that's kind of like the, the groove I'm trying to kind of figure out. Does that make it more sort of, uh, understandable to you or compelling to you or you still think it's, uh, I mean, I think my, my problem is exactly what I said initially. I'm just like, it seems too open. I had to put it. I think it strikes me as too abstract too general hmm. and not likely to get you anywhere or to end up leading you somewhere very dangerous. But I don't want to get anywhere other than where, yeah, I, you where do. I'm you're like, I want to like work on my aesthetics of existence to bring around rad- radical revolutionary social political change. That's, yeah, that's getting yeah. somewhere. Yes, but only in the dialectical sense of becoming truly content with who one is and where one already is mm-hmm. to such like a radically liberated degree 
that it becomes systemically or or system you know in, in a system perspective so you want it becomes become... destabilizing like i want my right. being to be i want my being i want my everyday being yeah. to be destabilizing for the status quo to the maximum degree yeah. but that's very so different but that's very different a... let me let me finish that's very different than me saying that i want to uh that that I think I can single handedly uh, sort of overthrow the status quo or something like that, or, or that I'm or that I'm trying to live in a way that is ends based. It's not ends based. I, but one can still want to live in a way that is totally justified uh, in its own terms for its own inherent value, and also identify that in an empirical sense that has systematically destabilizing effects. <laughs> I mean, that sounds absurd to me. Really? Yeah. Why? I mean. I suppose it's possible you can you can pick, I mean to me I'm like all right let's pick out I don't like, who do you is an example of a person who's done that mm. <laughs> um, well actually actually I think that most uh, or a lot of um, sort of the the intellectuals in in intellectual history that we see as revolutionary intellectuals a lot of them had a huge dosage of what I'm talking about in mm-hmm. ways that in contemporary what you call sort of radical theorists or radical intellectuals we just don't have today. So someone take someone like uh, Rosa Luxemburg, for instance, mm-hmm. um, or or um, yeah. I mean, the, okay. Just as one example, I could I could actually think of others. Uh, but we're talking about like absolutely explosive personalities. Yeah. Um, like it's not just that she was smart. It's not just that she was mm-hmm. intelligent or or politically dedicated. Uh, it's that her actual everyday being was super explosive and dangerous and irresistible. And mm-hmm. and do you see what I'm getting at? I think that is actually empirically uh, that empirically that could be borne out. What yeah, do you think? Maybe so. You're just talking about like revolutionary figures, but I mean, I'd submit that they're also all messes in some other way. Mm. Right, uh, but again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about like if you actually look at the different types of people that exist, and you compare what this type of person used to look like to what it currently looks like, you see, I, I do feel there's just been sort of this secular kind of society wide kind of pacification dynamic in which, you know, we don't, I, I don't know. Um, so I, I'm interested in basically, yeah, looking back to how people in their everyday, I mean, and, and also, I mean, this is like a, this is very, this is Foucauldian basically. I mean, this is like, this is why Foucault was so interested, right? In practices of the self, mm-hmm. care of the self and this sort of thing. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't that he thought like, you know, ancient Greek civilization was like, self-obsessed. I mean, perhaps it's a critique you could make, but that's obviously not why he was interested in it. He was interested in this sort of, uh, emerging way of seeing ourselves mm-hmm. as, as, as works of art in some sense. Uh, and yeah, I think, I'm fine with that. I think the, it's the last part where you're like, <laughs> and it's going to like explode the universe. Um, no, I don't think any one person can do that, but I do think that if we learn to build cultures mm-hmm. of that kind of explosive disalienated being of yeah. someone like Rosa Luxemburg, Mm-hmm. That that if we can learn to if we can relearn how to be like that, and we can actually build cultures around it, that that does actually become revolutionary and and system destabilizing. Obviously, not one person doing it would be that, but yeah. Um, so that's kind of like that. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, okay. That makes a little more sense to you. It's fine. Yeah, you don't have to agree, but uh, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity to. Uh, <laughs> now you've expressed uh, your idea. Expressed that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, so what else? I don't know. What, what else do you, do you want to talk about? What are you thinking about? I'm hungry. Okay, we could break and eat if you want. What time is it? How long have we talked on this topic of explosive revolutionary being? Um, 
No way. What? No, it's just... Oh, oh, okay, sorry. No, this is adding to our first session. So we've been... To, we've talked for two hours and 38 minutes total. Oh, okay. So, no, I mean, if we can break if you want, but... I mean, uh, other stuff. What else do you want to talk about? Um, tell me... you you. Tell me what you're interested... Whatever you want. Tell me what... Or you could just tell me what you're interested in. What have you been thinking about lately that you would uh, like to expound on? It's everything I've been thinking of is boring. It's all administrative. Hmm. Yeah. That's okay. You could talk about it if you want, or if you want to, presumably you might want to get your mind off that. That's cool too. Oh, why don't you tell me about, I'm just thinking about things we were talking about before. Um, tell me about, uh, you read that Ray Monk biography of Wittgenstein? Tell me about, yeah. tell me about the life of Wittgenstein. Was he cool? I don't know much about, I don't know <laughs> much about him. He's a bit like you. He's a bit, he's very ambitious. Was he? Yeah, he wanted to But he was also genius. mad reclusive, right? Like he just wanted to work on ideas, right? Uh, yeah, he led a pretty, um, odd life. I mean, he was, he's both extremely smart and also always right at the edge of a mental breakdown. He was also really sort of socially maladjusted, right? Yeah, I mean, my hunch just reading it is he had some kind of autism something. It's just speculation. Oh, real quick. And not because he was, not because he was socially maladjusted, just he... Yeah, the the account, at least in Ray Monk's biography, there's, like, accounts of him just being very, not picking up social cues all that well, all that kind of stuff, yeah. right? So, I'm, not, I'm obviously not suited to diagnose Asperger's or not, mm-hmm. but, and, but yeah, he was definitely something. Um, I mean, what do you want to know about him? Oh, um, well, no, I was just curious, because I, I don't know much about his life, but I know that he was reclusive, and, uh... Didn't he, isn't there some famous anecdote where he, like, didn't he go off into the woods to, like, build a hut? Yeah, he built, he went to Norway, and, uh, well, I mean, he's a kind of, so he comes from... Oh, real quick, could you give a, for some of our listeners who might not know uh, this kind of stuff, could you, could yeah. you give a quick one or two liner summarizing Wittgenstein and his position in sort of the history of ideas? Uh, Wittgenstein's a 20th century philosopher. His works on the philosophy of language, which... It's kind of tough to explain what that is to non-specialists, but basically, you know, what is language and then thinking about the nature of language and its effects kind of spills over in all kinds of different ways. Uh, he was, I, I think you could say he was, wasn't he sort of most famous for the, the, the overall just being that there are no real philosophical problems. There's sort of only uh, difficulties in language. Is that fair to say? Uh, Obviously, that's a very cartoonish that, kind well, of Well, that's, that's one yeah. of the things he says. He's, yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the things he says. So, uh, I don't know how to... He's kind of... So, he's it's a very intense person to read. He, he's really, during his life... Well, there's basically two major books that he published. Both are quite short, and they're made up of very short statements, aphorisms. I, want to, I don't want to say aphorisms because they're not really written in the aphoristic style, but it's a very, he retains this tendency of kind of writing a point and then kind of writing two or three sentences about something and then separating another point. And there, there is an internal logic to it, right. but like each, they're called remarks by Wittgenstein scholars. Each remark's kind of explosive in a kind of intense mm. way. It's a very, like, and there's, there's kind of a big split in his work, so... Early on, he, his first book's the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, and then his second book is the Philosophical Investigations, and there's a, 
almost a 30-year gap between the two of them. He does, there's other stuff that he's written in terms of notes and remarks that's published at different junctures, but those two books are the two big books. Um, the first ones, he's part of this movement called Logical Positivism, and he's a student of another philosopher, Bertrand Russell. And what do you find so most interesting about him? Uh, in terms of what? Like, or just what, 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 him, yeah, like what or... about his ideas do you find most interesting or useful? Uh, I, so, I mean, now or when? Uh, yeah, anytime. I mean, I got, I got it. So I got into it in a weird way. I was kind of very interested in working out methods for interpreting text in political theory. So I'm a political theorist by training. And so despite the fact that people like Justin accuse political theorists of having no method, we actually no. do have some. No, no, no. <laughs> and so... I, I was kind of really taken when I was an undergraduate by what's called the Cambridge School, which is about contextual, basically trying to locate a text in its historical context and then try and figure out what the author was trying to do. So we, you today might pick up a book like Hobbes's Leviathan or Machiavelli's The Prince and read it, and you'll, you'll probably get something out of it, but... They're also human beings who wrote in particular contexts, particular yeah. moments in time. And so part of what the Cambridge School does is tries to situate the the text back in its contexts, plural. And by doing that, hopefully helps you unlock some of the mysteries of the text or perhaps an, an answer some of the interpretive debates about what the author was really trying to say or intended to say. And... Um, Part of that turn that the Cambridge School makes is based off the philosophy of language turn. And so one of the big things that Wittgenstein does in his later work is advance the claim that the meanings of words are based upon how they're used in different linguistic contexts. And so the shorthand is like meaning is use. The meaning of a word is to right. know how to use it. And then there's, a, there's... So that was kind of how I initially got in that to kind of work out some basic problems. But then... In doing that, I kind of fell down the Wittgenstein hole, right? And so philosophical investigation is like a really short, you know, it's uh, 600 remarks in the first part and then another 40 or 50 pages in the second part. They're just his notes. And, um, but it's kind of one of those things you can keep going back over again and again and again, right? So it's, it's kind of its own maze. And it's, it's almost poetic in its style. It's kind of an interesting book. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the reason I like him... I mean, I haven't read him too closely. I read a bit of, I read like the Tractatus a, a bit in grad school and not in a very close way, but, yeah. and I've read, I read like, um, I don't even know if I finished it, but I've read, uh, like the blue and brown notebooks. Yeah. I have that. In yeah. My, my shelf. Uh, anyway, that, so I, I, I've never studied him too closely, but the thing I liked about the thing I was drawn to about him is that he's, I mean, he's pretty badass in the sense of like, he had a very sort of irreverent attitude to the history of philosophy, didn't he? He was kind of like, he was very bold and kind of like, yeah. Uh, kind of didn't give a fuck about, uh, yeah, just kind of didn't give a fuck. He was kind of, right, he, I mean, he was kind of basically saying, he was kind of trying to say, uh, in a pretty disrespectful way almost, that most of the history of philosophy is kind of nonsense, uh, and didn't really, in some sense, right? I yeah. Mean, uh, he was kind of like, all of you people have just been basically confused by language, and I'm going to set it straight, in these, like, two books. Yeah, I mean, he's an odd dog. Like, he kind of, like, because like, the first one, the Tractatus, it's what he submitted for his bachelor's degree at Cambridge, right? <laughs> and he had, like, G.E. Moore and um, and Bertrand Russell, like, two of the best 
philosophers alive at that point in time are on his examining committee and he basically kind of famously said, I don't think Moore even understands this, right? So it's kind of, that's like the level of... Or no, wasn't the, wasn't the anecdote that uh, Moore or Bertrand Russell admitted that they didn't fully understand it, but approved Maybe. it anyway? Maybe. I can't remember yeah, which yeah, way yeah. it went. Uh, I, well, Bertrand Russell never liked the second book. Thought the first book was like the greatest thing ever written. Thought the second book was mm-hmm. a disappointment. And then part of that's because Wittgenstein moves away from a lot of the principles that uh, um, uh, more uh, Bertrand Russell was advancing. So it's kind of like there's there's a schism there or a turn or something on earlier and later Wittgenstein. So, um, but yeah, no, he he was definitely so. Yeah, there's a couple things about him, right? So definitely confident to the point of arrogance, but also would quite often reveal some odd insecurities too. So mm-hmm. like there's the Ray Monk Bible is great. There's like all these kind of interesting, kind of goes back through Bertrand Russell's diary and there's these accounts of Wittgenstein kind of one day coming in and trying to argue with Russell and Russell basically constantly going back and forth in his diary saying, I can't decide if this guy's a genius or completely insane. Mm. It's kind of like, and, mm. the, and I don't think Russell ever decided the answer for that question at any point in his life. He's kind mm. of, you know, uh, and Wittgenstein, kind of his constant theme, he, he was very suicidal, and basically he thought that if he couldn't be a genius, um, then he should kill himself. Oh, wow. Really? That his I life was that. pointless if he wasn't a genius. And okay. he's kinda, he kind of got, I can't remember the name of the thinker. He's like, from an like early age, he read one of these German kind of romantic philosophers in the late 19th century. He was very taken with the idea that... Um, that he had a duty to be a genius. Hence, that's the title that Ray Monk picks up for the biography. Oh, it had to be Schopenhauer, right? No. No? I don't think it was Schopenhauer. But it was something like, it was very much of that kind of German, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Roma, like very yeah, kind of yeah. like, you must be yeah. the greatest or nothing, right? And that was a constant anxiety throughout his life. Right? That's interesting. I did not know that. that, bit yeah. that like, uh, even in the preface to the philosophical investigations, it's kind of, you know, it's like the most absurd, it's, it's kind of simultaneously false modesty, but you can also feel his pain because he's like, he basically goes, I would have liked to have written a great book, but this is the best I could muster, right? It's uh, like, you know. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, how, did, how did he finish out his days? He died from cancer. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, oh, I also read that book with, um, I forget the authors, but uh, the little popular book about his interactions with Karl Popper. Oh, yeah, Wittgenstein. I haven't read that one. It's a fun little book. It's a fun little book. Yeah, Yeah. it's a fun little book. It's it's centered around, you know, that anecdote, the the famous, like, uh, conflict that they had. Yeah. And I forget if it was Oxford or Cambridge or what. Yeah, he basically had a bad temper. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he's kind of not that. He's, he also like he also was very like, he was he he quit philosophy and then he like during World War One he deliberately enlisted in the Austro-Hungarian army and demanded to be put on the battlefront and like so like to note how he, one of the things that's interesting is he he grew up in one of the wealthiest families hmm. in Vienna, the Wittgensteins and like there were several suicides amongst his siblings and the kind of like this weird, like the whole family's batshit crazy. Hmm. Um, and you know, for, coming from that background, there's no way he would have been forced to go to the, not let alone unless in the army, but also kind of go to the front. And he was kind of adamant that he do that. Hmm. Uh, and he had this interesting kind of, but he was kind of a Milton atheist prior to the war and converted to Christianity during the war kind of his own kind of brand of it, but it kind of had some kind of religious conversion there. Hmm. And then 
decided to go become a school teacher and was by all accounts a very bad school teacher, kind of had like no patience with kids. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, like this kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, later in his career, he's teaching at Cambridge and he was notorious for basically telling his, his very promising Cambridge students to, to quit and go do something useful, like become a woodworker or a, a plumber or an engineer, right, like don't right, do right. philosophy. And then, right, right. You know, he went to the Soviet Union during the, you know, early days of Bolshevism and, uh, uh, like, went there. And he actually wanted to be a Stakhanovite. Like, I don't think, I think the Stakhanovite stuff's later on. But he actually wanted to go be made a worker mm. in a Soviet-run factory. And they wanted him for propaganda purposes. So he kind oh, of got disillusioned and head back. So. Oh, I never heard that. Yeah, he's kind of, he's just like this very intense individual. Like, kind yeah. of would always do everything all out. Huh, yeah. that's really cool. That's so really it kind of comes out in these books. But yeah, yeah, one of the things he did is build like this Norwegian log cabin retreat where he could just do his philosophy, mm-hmm. you know. And like, as a philosopher, like, there's like Tracy Strong, our colleague in his books, got this line about 20th century philosophers that they basically either want to show you they've read everything or they've read nothing. And like Wittgenstein wanted to pretend that he'd read nothing, right? Hmm. Basically sui generis, my ideas are completely original. And Tracy contrasts with Heidegger, who really does want to show you he's read everything, right? Hmm. Like he's read all of Western philosophy, hmm. right? So it's kind of interesting. Nice. That's super interesting. Interesting temperament. Um, so. That's cool. You, I feel like you have good reading retention. You've remembered a lot about the life of Wittgenstein. Uh, that's cool. It's it's a skill you need to be a political theorist. I know. I, I'm really trying to work on my reading retention. I feel like I read. Yeah, that's but that's neither here nor there. Um, cool. So what else? So I feel like uh, I I wager that we're probably getting tired, and I I I'm cognizant of the fact that I've been torturing you. Yeah. Uh, long. Well, we got to talk about Trump. Long enough, if you so. want your podcast to uh-huh. get the clickbait, you got to talk about Trump. Well, you say how much you love him, and then you got to talk about the Kardashians. Well, what I was going to suggest before before I, I finally finished torturing you <coughs> and you're you're yeah. off, off the clock was uh, over lunch. You were saying that you wanted to talk about. You were very passionate about talking about why you think I'm going to become a conservative. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm curious. I would say I'm, I'm passionate about this. I just said I think you're going to become a conservative. So I'm curious to hear your case for why you think that. Uh, I think you. I, I want to be like one. Of, you know those authoritarian personality tests. Oh yeah, we should. Let's take do them. that on you. We take them. I think yeah, like yeah. you. I think I don't think you're an authoritarian, but you have an authoritarian streak. Yeah, but I'm like left libertarian basically. Yeah, I know, but it's weird because like, I mean the, the the remark that triggered it for me was like we were watching those people coming back from like the the weird bouncy castle five k. Oh, yeah. And they're all adults dressed up in, like... This Batman. is on our walk for lunch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, you were like, it's just... What, what was your response? Well, okay, for background, for listeners, you pointed out that the people walking down the street wearing, like, weird kind of costume-like uh, attire, adults, mind you, uh, just got... You, you said they just got back from some weekly event in Southampton where there's, like, a marathon run type thing, but no, there's, no, but there's a, also it's a... It's like a, a weird... Ba- no, this was like a one-time bouncy... Ca- it's some, some weird thing. I saw it setting up. It was in the common... You know, some weird, like, obstacle course. Right. Like the obstacle the point... Okay. Thing. Yeah. The, for our listeners, the point being that we saw people walking back from what you informed me to be a kind of, like, adult fun exercise-type yeah. exercise uh, event outing yeah. where people where adults dress up in kind of, like, funny costumes yeah. and... Playing a bouncy castle. Yeah. Okay, so that's the background. So we saw these people, and Jonathan informed me that's what was going on. Um, and yeah, I just kind of said, what did I say? I just said that, like, 
Did a climate like, civilization? Well, no. I mean, I think that there, I think that there seriously, seriously is a kind of like uh, infantilization of adults mm. taking place yeah. uh, in our society yeah. over the past few decades, probably. Yeah. Um, but in this sense, this puts me. I, I think that. So I, I think that, that 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 is true. I think that's an empirical claim that is true, and and it is really troubling and fucked up and, and really unhealthy. Uh, and, and but not unhealthy. That's like a, that's a kind of that's a conservative perspective, right? I don't see yeah. in terms of like I'm not judging people's health. What I'm saying is. I think it is a sign of uh, cultural decay. I think you could say that. Yeah, I, th- I think there is a way of saying that that is not conservative. Uh, so this would be like Adorno, basically, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think Adorno is conservative. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to Adorno. I, I really like Adorno's perspective, and and I do kind of I do kind of agree that there are in certain key ways. I mean, look, if you think that capitalism is fucked up, and you think our social system is perverse and unhealthy and and fucks us up and oppre- mm-hmm. oppresses people and destroys human life in some sense. Um, then it's not too unreasonable to think that there would be dynamics in our culture over time where, like, people's cultural energies are becoming uh, dumber and dumber and, uh, like, less and less, you know, uh, admirable and uh, kind of worse and worse in different dimensions. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's not that unreasonable. Um, I think that what we have today is that there's often this kind of sociological sorting in which... Uh, political ideology kind of just by automatic association, but not, not a logical association, just a sociological association. If you have a certain political ideology or certain basic perspective, you tend to also think a bunch of other things mm-hmm. uh, simply because it's assumed or presumed. Um, but that's not at all ne- necessary. Uh, so, so I think this is one of those cases where in general, if you have a left wing ide- perspective, you tend to, you tend to not judge uh, adults for doing stupid shit. You tend to be very sympathetic and, and for all different kinds of things. But I do think there's, it's perfectly consistent to, uh, have a radical left and, and a, and a good kind of libertarian, you know, very, uh, very, you know, what I think are very kind of defensible politics and be like pretty, uh, brutally judgmental about certain like practices or tendencies. Yeah. That's my defense. What do you think? Uh, it's fine. Something you're gonna become a conservative. But why? Why can't I? Know, all the all my friends from grad school who are like Marxists who read Adorno, they all became conservatives. Is that right? Parties. Yeah, I think Adorno. We should do a study on like, that's, yeah, that's, that's an empirical. That's an empirical paper. We should. That's do that. the, like, I've got a good friend from grad school. He would not. He he now would define himself as a red Tory. Hmm. We could interview him on the podcast. He's pretty cool. I wonder how I many, how many of, of those do yeah. you think there are. That's an empirical project. I, I'd be curious to know. I, I just there's something weird about people who are drawn to Adorno. Hmm. That like I think there's something, about, and I mean it's I think it's the weird call. And so like he's he defines himself as a red Tory, which is like a very Canadian thing, which is like you there's a deep suspicion of social and societal change, and so there's there's kind of like this Burkean sense that gradual change is fine. Do you want to be revolutionary? But then you want a society, the society you want to conserve is like the welfare state liberalism of the '60s and '70s, right? right? So that's kind of. I think what this friend's view is. Yeah, he'd actually, not, he'd actually be an interesting guy to interview. So he's and he's also like definitely, Christian democracy, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's, he's, it's very Christian democracy, and he's—I don't know if he's a Christian now, but he'd be an interesting duck to interview because he's kind of he? like—he's in Toronto, teaches at York. Hmm. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, I but think, he's kind of—he's like a bit like you in that sense, and I can think of a few others, and I think that like there's some kind of. Concern, like I don't think you'll end up being like. Uh, I mean, it's tough to know what people are going to end up. Being. I, I don't think you're going to be like Ted Cruz or some crazy shit like that, right? Right. But 
I think there is some way in which Adorno's suspicion of uh, cultural change or something, because anti-jazz stance is anti-suspicion right, of mass right. culture, mass media, right? Like, that's a very clear schism in, like, left political theory or left social and critical theory. Right. And, like, you know, there's basically the, the posties are kind of like, I, I mean... It's, not, it's, not, it's almost like too much of a stereotype to say that it's almost like just dive right in and just accept all the absurdity of mass, whatever, uh-huh. post-mass culture, digital culture now, or reject it entirely. Right, 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 right. right. But do, do you think that there's a way that, that, that there's a different path that perhaps hasn't been explored enough or hasn't been held on to tight enough and developed enough that we can we can have a sort of really discerning and critical perspective on the different kinds of practices that seep into sort of common human behavior. Mm-hmm. And we can be ruthlessly judgmental about them as being uh, symptoms yeah. of, of like deep perverse alienation or, or, uh, or even just sort of symptoms of, of violent exploitative uh, ways of living or whatever. Um, and also not, uh, not make that last conservative move to basically kind of trying to like stop or repress uh, people from doing those things. Uh, but see it as like a, effects of systems. And yeah. I mean, to me, to me, I'm just like, to me, I'm curious about what the trigger is in seeing people walking around like, that. <laughs> yes, it annoys you. It makes you think it's a sign of cultural decay. Whereas I'm like, you know, I'm like, yeah, people want to, I mean, I, my reaction was total indifference. Like to me, there's probably 10 other injustices I saw on our walk that would outrage me more than that. And that seemed to be the one that triggered you. No, that, no, 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 it didn't trigger me. I just, you made a comment and then I made my response to that comment. Yeah. No, but you're, no, that's a fair point. I think you're totally yeah. right on that. And so I'm kind of like curious about like that, that authority. I don't think you're like a, a right wing. I mean, there's a left wing authoritarianism too, right? It's kind of, yeah. latent, but I think can be mobilized as well. But don't you just think just on, on, on just like an objective plane, do you, when you read someone like Adorno, yeah. uh, you, I mean, don't you think it's just fair to say, though, that, uh, you know, over time, especially in the 20, especially in the second half of the 20th century, um, that human being, that, that capitalism is just, to me, like, the simplest way of putting the argument is that over time, capitalism does really make human beings fucked up in, like, deep and kind of uh, deeply ingrained, embedded ways. Mm-hmm. And that if, if, if you do think that, like, if you think that capitalism fucks people up, um, it would be weird if you didn't find in people's behaviors and culture, cultural mm-hmm. changes, if you didn't find signs of, of, of decay and, alien, and, and, and alienation and, and kind of perversity. If you didn't find symptoms of perversity, that would be weird. That would, it sort of would be illogical if, if you do think that capitalism is fucking people up. So it's not that I, 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 I don't think I'm going, I don't, I'm not making the conservative move that, that often comes with that sort of sense of cultural decay. Because I try to keep my eyes on the fact that it's systems and institutions that are doing uh-huh. this. And what we witness in human beings is just symptoms of institutional and systemic forms of, yeah, like whatever, yeah. Uh, oppression or, viol- or violence or whatever. Um, I think we can be ruthless about calling out those symptoms as bad signs <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, without judging the people or coming down on the people or punishing the people for doing them. Uh, so, so, like, for instance... Like just to stick with our with our one example that not that not because it's an important example per se but just because it's illustrative, um, yeah. Like when it becomes like a weekend pastime for adults to go for like when adults sort of social and physical exercise kind of uh, 
free time routines, leisure routines, mm-hmm. become going to a park and playing on a bouncy castle like five-year-olds, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not judging them. I'm not coming down on them and I'm not blaming them. I'm saying I think it is fair to say that something might kind of be going wrong with uh, sort of our society. And I think that, that, that at least that instinct is totally fair and reasonable. And if anything, I think the radical left and just the left in general mm-hmm. is dishonest in the degree to which it refuses to even make those types of basic yeah. kind of, almost what are basically aesthetic or, or kind of ethical or political yeah. judgments See, about it, That's exactly where I think the fissure is going to come for you. <laughs> and then that fissure will be your break with the left. And then... But I feel like that break... You'll become like a comment... You'll be publishing a commentary. No, I totally see what you're saying. And, and I think what you're saying is really prescient and useful for thinking about how ideology kind of yeah. plays out over the life cycle. I think you're right. Um, but all I would say is that... I'm saying... Are you concerned that you might become a conservative? I'm not concerned because all I'm concerned about is the truth and seeking the truth and wherever that lands me, it will land me and I won't be concerned about it. I think there's a very simple way to stop it from happening. How? We should go and play on the bouncing castle. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe maybe you would just bounce around and you'd have fun. Okay, no, well, here, okay, here's the other thing. Or would you find the fun? No, you're totally... Are you afraid of the fun? No, in some sense, listen, I think you're totally right. And no, actually, this is my solution for how I will not become a conservative. Yeah. Because the conservative impulse is to distinguish oneself from the culturally decadent symptoms mm-hmm. that one finds repulsive yeah. and to judge and to create that distance. Yeah. That's the conservative move. I don't make that move. What I do is I actually would go in the bouncy castle and I do all different kinds of things just for pleasure and for fun that are, you know, that Adorno would see as like the end of humanity uh, and which I would kind of actually agree with. Um, mm-hmm. I do them because those are ways of surviving and ways of, of, mm-hmm. of existing in, in the status quo. And I'm not, that's the, I think that's the key thing is I'm not, I don't think that I'm too good for them. And I'm, I'm do, I do them as much as anyone and I can critique them in myself just as much as I can critique anyone else doing them. So to me, that's what keeps you real. Uh, and that's what allows you to have judgments of systems that are ruthless, uh, even in their sort of symptoms and individual behaviors, um, without making the conservative move. If, if, if it is the case that you're actually you're no better than that, and you do that also, and you recognize that. Um, that's that's my solution. What do you think? I think I'm right. I'm going to put some money on it. We have to have a bet that Justin will be a conservative by oh, 15 years. I'll give you 15 mm. years. By mm. 20... Shit. It's like 2041. Dude, well... You will be a Tory. They say that in within 100 years... Um, Many coastal cities will be underwater. So Southampton might not even exist. I want to go to the Tory. I want to go to the Ladbrokes right now and put down a bet. What kind of odds will you give me? Um, I want to be able to take this money. I want, we got to have something good. I don't know. Well, to be honest, I try not to be to be perfectly honest. Like I don't give a fuck about the quote unquote left. And I think people who thinkers and activists and all yeah. different kinds of people who are invested in like a particular sort of contemporary uh, mm-hmm. constellation of ideas or what is ultimately a kind of sociological constellation. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's too invested, who has their identity too invested in that is going to be thinking all kinds of things that are false simply because that's what sociological formations do to us. Uh, so to be perfectly honest, I, I mean, I think I clearly, I, I kind of roll in circles on the radical left and, and that's kind of what I, I find most, that's the vocabulary and kind of the, the uh, perspectives that I'm most interested in mm-hmm. working with and, and, and speaking from. And that's what I, I kind of identify with because I see it as the most useful um, but I don't, I actually don't feel like I have an emotional investment or identification with the, I mean, the left is the quote unquote left is filled with, uh, contains lots of like in, incredible stupidities and, and bullshit kinds of things, uh, that I, I, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, so that's just to be clear that I, I don't actually, 
I'm not afraid of becoming conservative because I don't necessarily, mm. I think, to be perfectly honest, I think the smart conservatives in history are way undervalued by radical left people who could learn a shitload. Like, someone like Michael Oakeshott, right? Like, yeah. who, I don't know too much about it, his more, I, like, I, I don't know much about his biography. He might have loathsome uh, political ideas that I would not uh, associate with. I'm, I just don't know. Uh, I suspect someone at that time was, like, more or less vaguely racist in certain ways or whatever. Um, maybe was maybe not. horse racing. Was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying any, anything about his biography because I don't know. Are you into horse racing? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Come on, like, we should just go bet on some ponies. Um, I'm maybe into it. it. I, I mean, I'm into it as, like, a beautiful thing. But it's actually, like, the idea of horses racing is an idea that I support and I think is beautiful. But the practice and sociology of, like, horse racing, I don't. Fun, Do you like beautiful. betting and making lots of money? Uh, <laughs> I like making enough money to live. All right. I think what we should do is we should stop the podcast. We should go to Rockstone and get like a burger and fries and a beer. And then we should go to Ladbrokes and bet on a bunch of shit and see what happens. Uh, do you literally want to do that? Yeah. Okay. I would literally do that. I Because I've never been to one of those places. Yeah, me neither. And then we could talk about it on the next podcast. Yeah, we, we, can, next we can come back and do a reflection on, on betting. Um, on gambling. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I personally think gambling is... Well... I think it's an inefficient market waiting to be exploited by someone with your quantitative skills. I think it's kind of like what we were talking about before. I don't have an opinion on gambling. Like, half of me feels like it's fun and it could be a way of having excitement. And so it is a good thing that I should do. And then half of me feels like it's stupid and can, can be destructive. Poker. Are you good at poker? You know what I... No, I'm fucking like... I'm Buridan's ass. That's what I am. Like, I'm, I feel... I constantly feel equidistant between uh, favoring the idea of doing something and, and being opposed to the idea of doing something. And I I just don't... I won't move either way until I know what my position is. So, to be honest, I actually don't know if I would go to Ladbrokes with you. Because I just don't know if should I should do that. Go once and try it, and then if you like it, do it again. Or are you so afraid that you'll do it and like it so much that you'll rack up massive debt? Well, that is the risk. I mean, I'd like to experiment with drugs, but I wouldn't exper- I haven't experimented with heroin because I'm just too scared of the idea that one time might get me. Uh, addicted? Yeah, I mean, gambling. It could happen with gambling, too. I think with heroin, you probably wouldn't get addicted if you did it one time. I think the bigger risk is that you might be clumsy with an overdose. Mm, yeah, I can be clumsy. Uh, but th- I think that if I went to Ladbrokes and maybe got... If I found it really fun, um, I could maybe just start going every weekend and that would be bad. Are you not able to control your impulses? Um, no, I am able. But if I find something that I think is genuinely desirable, then I will do it very intensely. It's a good way to be. Unless it's gambling. <laughs> Why is it bad if it's gambling? Uh, because you lose. How did you do when you were playing poker? I did well, but that was at a time when you could win because there were fish playing. But Couldn't you can't you can't win in the long run at Labrooks. I guess unless you do sports casino. betting. Unless you do sports betting and you have uh, information advantages, but I don't have any information advantages. It's true. What about? Uh, yeah, I think I suspect sports betting is pretty tricky. I've never tried it. You I mean, need you need some information advantage, and if you don't, then you can't win. I think. Um, Right, because you're betting against other people who are informed. So that's the only way you can have leverage to win over time. Yeah, I mean, sports brokers know, like, sports bookies know everything. Yeah, yeah, like, right. The level of knowledge is ridiculous. Right. Um, uh, wait, can I just finish my point real quick about Mike Lokeshot? Sure. I know I was boring you to tears, and <laughs> that's why you It's your podcast, man. You want to talk about Michael Oakeshott? Well, no, I, I don't that much, and uh, I, I won't belabor the point. I just wanted to finish the point. Just that I think smart conservatives, such as Michael Oakeshott, um, 
actually have a shitload to teach people on the radical left, um, but no one reads stuff like you Michael should read, uh You should read George Grant, who's a conservative, but oddly Marxist and Heideggerian. He's Canadian. I like left Heideggerians. Yeah, but he's a right left Heideggerian. Uh, he's a very fucking weird guy. Was he a Nazi? <laughs> no, he was anti-Nazi. He's Canadian. He lives from Toronto area. He went... He was in. He went to England, like probably some of one of the Oxbridge schools. And then when World War II broke out, because he was Christian, he refused to fight, so he enlisted as an ambulance driver mm. and did that. And then he came back to Canada, like at the end of World War II, and he had this like very weird schism where his reaction was that technology had technology and liberalism had destroyed Canada. And then he's basically he's got these very intense set of kind of rants that he writes in the 50s and 60s. Was he an academic? Yeah, yeah, no, he was a Canadian academic. He was like, he was kind of a weirdo. He was very, basically he was conservative, but he was very influential in the founding of the Social Democratic Party in Canada, but then got disillusioned when it, uh, like Canadian social democracy kind of has a, has a social gospel strand to it. And so he kind of came out of that, but then felt that it became too secularized. Hmm. It became anti-political mobilized against the Vietnam War, but all of his texts are, like, conservative laments. Like, his probably most famous Canadian text is, like, Lament for a Nation. He writes this in the 60s when Canada accepts nuclear warheads on its missiles in the U.S., and he saw this in the moment that Canada fell into the American Empire. And for oh. him, the problem with the American Empire is this liberal capitalist technological empire that's more okay. bankrupt. I do kind of like that perspective a bit. Yeah. So he, 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 you like him? He has, like, defensible politics, you think? Uh, I mean, some things. He's, like, virulently anti-abortion, virulently... I mean, he says nothing about gay rights, but I assume he'd be, like, super... Right. You know, he'd be a paleoconservative in a lot of other ways. And he's got this, you know... it's He's, he's a conservative in the sense he has nostalgia for the past, right? So he thinks the present's signifies some kind of decline. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, he, his answer is to dial things back. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, you might want to read him. That's, a, that's, a, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean... the Probably Lament for Nation wouldn't be that interesting for you unless you want to get, like, into, deep into, like, Canadian psyche. But, like, he's he has a couple of others, like, a uh, couple of other essays that are kind of his attempts to do a Canadian... Like, do, like, a political philosophy of Heidegger. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just not. I'm not into the nation, though. You know, I don't, no like you're not either. I don't think. Right. What? The nation state. Like, as some, I, I'm not fucking it. I don't want to save that shit. Uh, he's not trying to save the Canadian nation state. Oh no, it's no. Oh, but you said lament of the nation. So it's what uh, it's lament for the nation. This is the title. It's he's like these uh, essays he wrote. So it's, he's not. Is he? But he, is he into the nation? No, I mean, they can be. What he's lamenting is this kind of. It's hard to explain because you're not Canadian. So it's like, mm. like basically, part of Canadian identity is that it's not American, and it's tied very closely with the fact that during the American War of Independence, the Canadian colonies refused to join. Right? I'm not sure if you knew that. Like, the, mm. the, George Washington's army, one of the American armies, marched on Montreal and occupied it for like six months, okay. and then retreated. Right. And there's an attempt to kind of get those colonies to join. They refuse, and then. During the American War of Independence, about a third of people living in the 13 U.S. colonies remained loyal to the crown, right? And a lot of them, like, 
couple hundred thousand, which is like a huge musher. You can look it up on your Google thing. But sure. they're like, uh, there's a mass exodus from the colonies to British North America hmm. for people who refused to join. Okay. Hmm. And wanted to remain loyal to the crown. And so there was this set of Canadian colonists and settlers who were very attached to being part of the British Empire. Hmm. Right? And then post-World War II, as the British Empire unravels, there's that, that's basically Canadian conservatism is like a desire to remain basically a, a crypto colony. And hmm. George Grant's retaining that. And he's afraid of the rise of a stronger Canadian identity, which really takes off post-World War II. There's, one, there's a bunch of symbolic stuff. Like Canada originally had a thing called the Red Ensign, which had like the British, it's kind of like the Australian and New Zealand flag would have like a little Union Jack in the corner with mm -hmm. Canadian insignias around it. That gets displaced by a specifically Canadian flag with no British signifiers, a kind of greater constitutional adjustments where Canada gets more and more control of its constitution. Like that big shift in the 60s and 70s leads to Canada becoming a distinct country, and he was against that because he thought that that would then mean that Canada would just be totally mm. sucked into the American empire. Mm. Oh, okay. I, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, okay. Cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. He's a weirdo. I've never heard of him, so that's pretty cool. Well, he's Canadian, so he wouldn't care if he wasn't Canadian. Yeah, right? that's a shame that I haven't heard It's because you're from America. No, yeah, that's a shame, though, that uh, thinkers, interesting thinkers from other countries don't get as much, like, name recognition. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. It's good. Um, cool. So I don't want to torture you anymore. We have been talking for quite a while. How long have been, been talking It's been a now? great sport. Um, today we've been, if we, well, we might, like we said, like I said, we might split this up, but um, we've been talking for a total today of three hours and 15 minutes. It's good. It's pretty long, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you had fun? I'd be curious to know, like, uh, how about some closing thoughts on... Some reflections yeah. on the podcast? Yeah, how have you felt about this? I think it's good. I think, uh, yeah, no, I think it's a good quality product we're putting out there for the for the masses. Um, fuck products. Also, oh. fuck the masses. <laughs> oh, I love everything. No, I think, I don't know if people will be interested in listening to any of this at all. I, you can do it how you want to do it because it's your podcast. Right, but what do you think? Uh, how, have, how have you enjoyed how have you experienced it I've enjoyed the conversation it's been good and free flowing do you think anyone in the world could possibly enjoy listening to this uh, I mean alright here's my advice would be I think there were very distinct topics we spoke about and you might want to think about breaking it up into three shorter podcasts and annotating it somehow mm, too much work yeah fuck that you can just throw it out there and see what people say that's good no it's good advice if I was like if I had a producer if I had like time yeah. if I had time and energy I would probably do yeah. that but, I do think uh, that like because like the topics are a bit like weird so but people might hate them um I think you need some good bumper music mm. yeah you know I've been thinking about that because I know that's like what podcasts do but I kind of hate that shit to be honest like whenever I listen to podcasts the music in between things at the beginning and the end I I hate it alright you can just strip it down I'm kind of been, yeah I'm kind of thinking about doing like a totally bare bones things where it's like uh no frills at all, no introductions, yeah. no nothing, no background. Just like begins with us talking, ends with us talking. Yeah, I, I have no idea who would be interested in these crazy ramblings, but well, we'll, we'll find, find out. out. But no, like I said, I mean, when I say fuck the masses, I don't mean like I have disrespect towards people. I mean like I, I think honestly you insult your listeners. No, the more I mean, well, no, the more what I really mean is that. Uh, I really just don't, with all due respect to people, I don't care if anyone finds this interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, because I actually think that that is, <laughs> but no, no, but, but, but giving your, giving yourself that, um, mm -hmm. freedom mm -hmm. to not feel beholden to what people desire 
is precisely, you know, the irony is, I think that is precisely what would allow people conversing to actually touch terrains that become interesting and autonomously, organically, uh, kind of fascinating and, and worth listening to precisely that, uh, you know, the point is not to, to impress or desire or satisfy the desires of anyone in particular. Uh, so that's my wager that I think, I mean, I think if I were not in this podcast, I think I would listen to this and find it interesting. So there are much, and maybe you would too, by definition, if you're kind of doing it with me. So, uh, if there are other people in the world that are all like, that are at all like you and at all like me, yeah. then there must be at least a handful of people who might find this uh, worth listening to. And then when I have other guests, they'll bring a totally different kind of chemistry. Do you want me to come when you have other guests and interview them, or are you just going to do, like, other guests one-on-one? What's your format going to be? I have very little sort of plan or agenda. It could be... It'll it'll be however it develops. I think I'll try to get as many interesting people that I have access to booked for, like, uh, a few over the summer. Yeah. Um, But if you enjoyed this and you liked doing this today, then you and I... I'm happy to do this with you just for fun. Uh, and then we can do it as much as we feel like if we, if we desire it. Um, yeah, I like that. And then maybe we would get, uh, maybe you and I would like develop, uh, a groove, right? We would get into like a, a smoother routine and, uh, maybe it would become something other than it was today. And that's kind of interesting thought. It's good. I like that. All right. I would cool. do it again, but I think we need a guest that we can harangue or something. I think you're not interested in yourself enough. You think I should be interested in myself? I mean, Sartre, Sartre says that, you know, oneself is and should be, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, <laughs> he says, he does say that oneself is and, and should be uh, one of the most interesting things available to one. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, and I really, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. I really do think that there is this, uh, we have this kind of knee-jerk assumption that thinking about sort of introspective information, mm-hmm. talking about introspective information is just navel-gazing or it's, it's bourgeois or it's individualistic or whatever. Uh and I think that that's actually just a false idea that we learn because we're taught to hate ourselves. It's good. Okay, I got one more question. Let me have to eat a burger. <laughs> sure. All right. So, what does Aria think about uh, Beyonce's Lemonade album? Oh, uh, you'll have to ask her. No, there's like very clear attempt to like not answer this question. Um, I can't speak for Aria, but you must know. I do, but uh, <laughs> you won't tell us. It's like a mystery. She could express her uh, perspective on Beyonce much better than I could, and also it's like she said in the last podcast that uh, I think she earnestly does not believe that her opinion on Beyonce is worth expressing, and I appreciate that. What's your opinion on Beyonce? Um, I don't really have one. I uh, I think she's like you know as brilliant and creative and uh, interesting a pop star as any pop star. Uh, but I don't. Having said that, I mean I don't think that. I see no reason to believe that she is like more than a pop star. And I do tend to think most pop stars are shit. So, uh, again, it kind of, that might sound like a kind of conservatism. Uh, and there, like you were saying, there's this sort of like left wing kind of knee jerk idea that a lot of people have, I think, which is like, if you're not like actively finding ways to embrace kind of like pop culture, then you're like an inhumane, judgmental, conservative reactionary, uh, opposed to all change. And I, think that, and I think that's that's wrong, but uh, that's a basically a long winded a long winded way of saying that. I you have hate no Beyonce. I have no opinion. No, I don't hate I don't hate Beyonce any more than I hate kind of like just the culture of like capital cultural markets. But uh, do you think Jay Z cheated on Beyonce? Uh, I have no evidence to believe that that is the case. You know what she's saying about it. Well, I didn't hear that. Oh. I'm not saying evi- I'm not saying evidence doesn't. I'm not saying evidence doesn't exist. I'm just saying I have no idea. It's true. 
What do you think about uh, Beyonce's Lemonade? I haven't listened to it. I've just read all the reaction to it. I'm like a typical academic where you just don't actually read the primary text. You just read all the commentaries and then write about it based off the commentaries. Okay, so after reading all the commentaries, uh, where do you sociologically place yourself in uh, the spectrum of opinion? Because uh... you can do that, can't you? I mean, like, I can read the headlines. I can read all the headlines of all the think pieces about Lemonade. And then after reading those headlines, I can tell you where I come down on those headlines. Yeah. That's what most people do, isn't it? Yeah, no, they most people formulate opinions in response to that. I think I'm just like, uh, fuck. I don't know. I think it's fine. I, I like Beyonce for me. Like, I actually like Jay-Z a lot, and Beyonce, I don't listen to much of her stuff. Hmm. Like, I know the big hits that kind of punch them become cultural things, but, Yeah. Like she's a good singer. It's just not. It's just pop. Loud pop music is just not my interest as a genre of music to listen to. I think my problem is that beyond a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. I can't trust anyone. Uh, I have no problem with that. I mean, I like to me, I'm like if someone makes a lot of money, whatever, it's fine. Um, I mean, it's it's obvious. I mean, the short. I, I it's interesting to me. It's obvious to me that both Jay Z and Beyonce are going through some kind of midlife crisis, right? I think, well, I think in the sense that JC's music's always said more, hmm. had more of a political content or more of a social content, hmm. right? Uh, than Beyonce. I'm sure some Beyonce fan will rip my head off for that. <laughs> but, uh, but it's obvious, like, from the formation stuff and from the Lemonade stuff, it's clear she's trying to produce art now, right? Hmm. And that's not a terrible thing to do, right? It's kind of, she's, you know, that's interesting for me. I feel like again, beyond a certain amount of money, it's not even that I'm judging them. Mm-hmm. It's just that beyond a certain amount of money, I think the capacity to do something that would be called sort of autonomous creativity <laughs> is, is just because it becomes hard to fathom, not because of anything wrong with them, but because yeah, certain, beyond a certain threshold, I think money, yeah, can basically just, uh, delude one so powerfully that again it's not even judge, judging it's just I find it hard to trust the creativity like the, the creative the, the creative capacity almost of anyone beyond a certain amount of money like I like I, this is what I was joking with Ari about I, I'm I feel vaguely uh, like it might be possible that everything someone like Beyonce and Jay-Z does is basically a kind of like business decision kind of made behind closed doors um Maybe that's, like, totally loony, but I actually do kind of, like, like I, I have no reason not to think that. And there's a fair amount of reason to think that that is kind of how culture works beyond a certain level of money. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, part of me is, like, I think there are, there's also a way in which you get to make so much money and you just don't give two shits anymore, right? Like, uh, and you just do what you want to do. Like, I, I, I can right. certainly, I don't know where they are in that spectrum, but, like, I think, like, who am I thinking? Like Bob Dylan, right? Like, just makes ridiculous sums of money, right? Mm. Um, and honestly, he went through a period in the 80s and early 90s where the albums was turning over utter shit, right? Mm. But then he clearly, late 90s, early 2000s, I think, released three really, really good albums in a row. And mm. he's kind of just been doing goofy stuff. He released like a Christmas cover video, 
mm. here comes Santa Claus, right? Just because he could, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was actually a pretty good cover, right? Just like he's just kind of like, I'll just do what I want to do, right? Hmm. Or Johnny Cash, same thing, like, you know, massive star, very rich. And like the last, I like honestly, like the last set of albums he released were basically all covers and they were just like brilliant covers right like mm. just and it's, again it's a guy in his 70s like I can do whatever I want I'm gonna do it or Neil Young same way he did like he just released a stealth covers album a few years ago it was kind of mm. very stripped down interesting made basically no splash but was really good or you know I, I don't know where Beyonce and Jay-Z are on that that mm. spectrum but they're also so wealthy they could basically anything they could do from now on out, uh, could flop and they'd be fine. True. That is interesting. I, I guess it's a sort of an empirical question about the effects of large amounts of money. Like whether if it, it you, what you're saying is, and it's possible, it could actually liberate people to do whatever the fuck they want as autonomously as possible because they're so economically secure, or it could, uh, be so sort of mystifying, uh, that autonomous creativity is becomes, becomes like foreclosed to one, yeah. uh, in some sense. Uh, if one's, if one's most basic yeah. creative capacities are so much a function of like a history of money making. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, like I like Jay-Z a lot. I thought his last album was crap. The, whatever it was, Magna Carta, Holy Grail thing. Right. And like, I think it was, it was technically like, kind of fine as an album, but I think like the central conceit of the sing the big single from that album was like totally uninteresting to me. Right. Like, like that was, and that was kind of him reflecting on the effects of fame on him. Mm. And like, probably for him, that's a very interesting topic. So he actually is writing from his heart, but yeah. to me, it's like just an average schmo. It's like, yeah, right. I really don't give two shits, buddy. Okay, right. Fair enough. Like, like, and that, that's actually a very common, you see that with artists where like their first album or two albums is really good. And then like, cause they've got enough authentic experience to draw on and then they become something and that distorts them. I think that's kind of a very common artist dynamic right sure. but then i think maybe you just get to a point where you can be honest about shit again or draw on other sure. shit that's so. cool yeah no i see your point and i yeah i'll give you the last word on that because i guess the truth is i just don't i'm i sort of see most of pop culture like i see sort of the like the political news on a daily basis like i just don't really follow it that well uh, uh so i should i i very i feel very uh, little capacity to make very interesting judgments about like particular pop culture items yeah. with some exceptions, the ones that I do sort of follow or whatever. But, um, yeah, so sometimes I think I got nothing. I think you should really just not try to produce anything and just become a couch potato for six months and just consume as much trash media as you can. It is fun when I do it. I mean, definitely. I think, and um, I think you should just go all in and I think you'll be amazed at what you can pull out of it. But in what sense, pull out of it? find it fascinating. Like I find culture intellectually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, but in actually, I find that the more, the longer I'm away from it all, mm -hmm. when I do dip back, do dip back into it, the more uh, just astonishingly interesting and illuminating it is. I think you should uh, really get into cricket. Yeah, that could be like good for you. Do you like that sport? No, I know nothing about it. It's completely, like, what's funny is I ask British people a bit about it, trying, like, and they're just, they, they have no time. They're just like, fuck off, I'm not talking to you about cricket. Wow. I wonder why that is. Because <laughs> yeah, they, they don't like, like, some Yankee foreigner mucking up their perfect British colonial game. Or it's just like I was saying when I try to get advice about whether I should have babies. Uh -huh. It might be the same thing. It's like people don't want to give advice. Uh, people don't want to, like, tell you what to do. 
So you like sincerely want to know whether you should get interested in cricket. You want to kind of understand it. And people, I, I could invest. People in just it. don't if want I to give that to you. Like, I should go get the Sky Sports package and just spend my ass on the couch this summer watching as much cricket as possible, and then reading a bunch of books and figuring it out. I could do it. Do you want to? No. <laughs> <laughs> cool. You don't have to. Uh, right. So the last word. Should is we wrap be, it up? Yeah, but I get the last word. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I've been looking at that pull-up bar. I want to see if I can do a chin-up. Oh, nice. I haven't done a chin-up like in ages, so I'll probably fall or I'll break it. Go okay, for it. Pull it up or not. This is interesting material for a podcast because I can't really see it, but I'll narrate it. Jonathan is about to do a pull-up on my pull-up bar. Nice. Did one. Did two. Two. Nice. Well, all right. Not well bad. done. I would I would do some now, but then that would literally mean that this podcast descended into like male competition, like physical competition, which I'll spare. Up, I'll spare Let's us. Let's go get a burger and drink and gamble our life away. Uh, I'll think about that. With I think you we should over. Just go right over the edge and then come back and like this is us from jail podcasting. <laughs> just fucking kill it right now. Bye. That would be a good way to proceed. Bye. With the podcast. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jonathan. See you later.